Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. The way that I look at a brewing business is if you want to sell beer, you've got to make the beer, you've got to sell the beer, you've got to have a sales force, you've got to do the logistics around beer, delivering beer and all that sort of stuff. And then you've got to do the financials, which means getting paid on time and making sure that your business is profitable. And I was just good at making the beer. Stephen Henderson is a craft beer rock star. He goes by the moniker Hendo, and he's one of the best-known personalities in the Australian craft beer industry. Well-loved and well-respected. And from what I can tell, well-deserved. He started a contract, or gypsy brewing company, called Brewcolt. He pushed the boundaries of what people in Australia considered craft beer. He won awards for great beer, expanded his distribution, and traveled the country living the life of a national beer celebrity. And then the whole thing came crashing down, leaving a spectacular hole in the Australian craft beer scene, and of course, a rough patch in Hendo's personal life. But this story ends with a win, as we'll hear in the fifth segment. Hendo has gone back to why he loved the industry in the first place. Selling beer was never his passion, it was making the best beer he could. As Australia's Rockstar Brewer, it was only fitting that he would start and found the Rockstar Brewer Academy. Like me, he's focused on making the industry better, but unlike me, he's focused on doing it by mentoring and coaching brewers all over the world to make the best beer they possibly can. And now, here's the emotional, inspiring story of Steve Hendo Henderson and Australia's late craft beer brewing company, followed up with the Rockstar Brewer Academy. Well, Hendo, I want to thank you for joining us today. You have one of the most interesting kind of pedigrees and stories and histories in the craft beer industry of people I've talked to today. And a bunch of American people are going to be pissed me for saying that because you happen to be a down under guy. But I appreciate you joining <laughs> us from tomorrow. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome to the future. Yeah, thank you very much. I, there's no possible way that we're going to get through everything that I want to ask you and talk about today simply because, A, it looks like you've been in the industry since about the dawn of time, even though you appear to be about 34 years old. But um, also because it's just there's a lot to go over considering you're in a different country. So let's just do what we can, right? Like, how about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. All right. All right. For those for those of people in the United States who don't know who you are, uh, clearly you're a bit of a minor celebrity down in Australia or in, maybe in your mind a major celebrity. But how did you start it? Who the, who the hell were you before you were beer? Yeah, I've been a professional brewer for about 15 years or so now. And, you know, uh, 100% of it here in Australia, 100% of it in, you know, the independent brewing space, that sort of thing. I've never worked for any of the major multinational breweries or anything like that. Very eclectic brewing history, I think, would be the right word to use for that. But it's been a lot of fun. I'm not done yet. I'm still, I might be, thanks for calling me 34, by the way. That's, um, that makes me feel good, man. Yeah, having a ball. Just enjoy making beer. That's that's my jam. You worked in a few breweries before you started your own, which um, if you don't know a lot about the U.S. beer scene, that's not always how it works. And most of the breweries today that are open are some guy who made, you know, shit in his garage and 
I decided he wanted to share his shit with the rest of the world. So how did you get started? What was the first job like? Was it, I have no nothing, please give me a job, let me volunteer on the candy line or what was going on? Yeah, no, so actually, yeah, I made shit in my garage and <laughs> poorly, you know, this is sort of in the early 2000s, you know, I was just doing extract brewing and, and that sort of thing. Like I wanted to know where this goo in the tin came from rather than look it up on the internet because there wasn't really much internet back in the early 2000s, at least with home brewing and that sort of thing. I thought, okay, I'll go get a postgraduate degree in brewing. So I was working in IT at the time and went, started doing that postgraduate study Took me a few years to complete it, a couple of attempts to do it. Yeah, got there in the end and decided to go and get my first job in the industry, which lasted exactly nine days <laughs> until there was a major industrial accident where a bright beer tank exploded. Then that was basically the end of that job, more or less, short version of that story. And then I got a job down in Victoria working for a gentleman by the name of Luke Scott at a brewery called Prickly Moses. That was like, you know, country Victoria in a little town called Colac, having a ball there, making some good beers, started, you know, Luke was a really good head brewer to work under because he gave me a bit of freedom to start doing recipe development and that sort of thing. Released my first commercially released beer recipe, which was a India Black Ale. I call it Black IPA these days, but... <laughs> You're really young, but uh, yeah, that's this, right. is, this is a while back and I looked them up today and it, their brewery looks like a... United States winery. It's a winery. It's beautiful. Like, was yeah, it? It's stunning. Considering what we normally have in the U.S., I think it's a cool place to really kind of cut your teeth, which is a different approach to beer making, in my opinion. Did you experience that where it was just a little more small batch and like whatever you thought was um, cool? We lots of small batch. It was, we were filling bottles with a, with a gravity filler <laughs> and no complete disregard to dissolved oxygen and bottle conditioning and, you know, and all that sort of thing and filtering with a plate and frame filter and all that sort of hard work stuff that really doesn't exist anymore and so you know i learned a lot about how to make beer and just as much as how not to make beer as well made some great beers at the time and did that for about three years and i got pretty tired of you know i wanted to move closer to melbourne because all my friends are in melbourne it was you know it's two hours drive to, to melbourne it was quite difficult to catch up with friends on the weekend and that sort of thing and so i wound up getting a and you're gonna laugh at this I ended up getting a job in Geelong and I became the head brewer of a brewery called Southern Day Brewing Company, which if you have a look at your Instagram post from this morning with all of that really offensive social media they put out the day, I just want to say that I was not there when that happened. That was like several years afterwards. I was going to give you a chance so, to comment on that and say, was that yeah, culture there no, when you were there? <laughs> uh, yes, it was. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it yeah. was very, very, yeah. So I got the job as the head brewer of Southern Bay Brewing Company. So Southern Bay was pretty, pretty big brewery for its time. You know, I was doing about 1.2 million litres a year. Most of it contract brewing and that sort of thing. Probably about 90% of the production was contract brewing. And so all of a sudden, you know, I found myself, to be honest, I was way over my head and way underqualified for the job. But luckily I, I had an amazing team of brewers who it was very much lad culture you know, very, very blokey, you know, sort of thing that was sort of happening there. And had that sort of thing happened uh, in 2023, there would be like some serious issues there. But it was good fun at the time and doing a lot of contract brewing. We were responsible for brewing some very well-known brands at the time. It was good, but it was very blokey, a lot of lad culture. And it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty challenging place to work. The brewery was really, really old, right? So the brewery was built in 1988 and it was built from all this upcycled, big scale brewing equipment. So there were no cylindroconical vessels in this brewery. So we were fermenting in these square rectangular 
tanks that were about 180 hectolitres or 170-odd barrels and that sort of thing. Imagine a 40-foot container that was sort of cut lengthways down the middle. That's kind of the shape of the tank. Basically, what happened there was we brewed on a brew house that was could brew 60 to 80 hectolitres, but it was not stainless steel. It was mild steel. So the literally the surface of the kettle and the whirlpool was rust. And the Lauderton came out of an old distillery in Geelong. And, and basically, the false bottom in that was made of brass. Stainless steel, wooden line, beautiful, beautiful vessel, all cedar and that sort of thing. But inside it was a brass false bottom, and oh my god, it was just such a nightmare to clean because you weren't allowed to put caustic in it, obviously, with mild steel and brass and that sort of thing. I don't know that I've seen so, a brass false bottom. Why, why would they be that way? Just because they're, I don't even know. Why? I think it's just old. It's just it was just so <laughs> old. Like I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that 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 Lauder ton was about sixty or seventy years old at the time. Like there was no rakes in the Lauder ton. And when you wanted to grain out, take the spent grain out, you physically had to jump in with boots on and dig and, mm. and shovel the spent grain into a corner, even though it's round, there's no corner, but into the corner, into an auger and out the building, that sort of thing. It was super challenging place to work in. And we'd be mashing anywhere up to 13, 1400 kilos, so over a ton of malt, and you'd have to dig it out with a shovel spent grain. <laughs> Um, even heavier and it was really interesting yeah well exactly yeah I didn't do it as often I know I've got a mate who I work with there who's gonna laugh me going (laughs) fucking hell Hendo you only did it you only did it three times while you were there and but you know I have much respect for it and that sort of thing and then there was a big diatomaceous earth filter which is a bit of a no-no in in craft brewing now there was the the bright beer tanks there was a couple of fiberglass ones pressure vessels old school they were like you know six eight inch thick Fiberglass, pressure vessels, rotary head filler, 40 head or something like that. We had a very, very rusty tunnel pasteurizer, but the labeler and the case packer and everything at the end was really, really good. So yeah, it was it was a very old, antiquated brewery, very difficult to make beer on, but we made good beer on it. We made some beer for some really good clients and some good people. I always, at the time, the signature IPA on the Australian craft beer market was a beer called Feral Hop Hog by Feral Brewing Company. And it had won so many awards, you know, it was countless number of trophies and gold medals. And my personal mission as a brewer was to brew a beer as good as Hop Hog. And in 2012, at the Perth Royal Beer Show, we beat Hop Hog uh, with the Hop Bazooka IPA, it was called. And that was a pretty pretty good moment. I went, ah, oh, shit, I can make decent beer when you put your mind to it. But I was there for about a year and then stupidly decided I'd start my own brewing company. <laughs> well, that's the question obviously everybody wants to know. So what was that transition like? Like these guys don't know what they're doing. I'm clearly better or I have so much creativity. I just can't keep it in my pants anymore. Why was Brew Colt a brewery that needed to happen then. It was the creativity thing, yeah. I definitely couldn't keep it in my pants. It was so, you know, I'd done a bit of recipe development at um, Prickly Moses, did a lot more at Southern Bay and really involved the, the, the team. Getting a name, a label, bringing it all together and having that beer produced really, really quickly. We don't have to have label approval here in Australia, so we don't have the same problems that you guys have. That'd be nice. I said to myself, I said, self, well, why don't I just give this a crack? You know, if I make some decent, interesting beers, then people will buy them. That was as, it was as simple as that. I left Southern Bay in early 2013 and started Brewcult. You know, that was kind of in February, March, and we have a big beer festival in Australia. It's national now, but um, it was just in Melbourne at the time called the Great Australian Beer Spectacular or Gabs Festival. I asked Steve and Guy, the two owners of, of the festival, I think it was, it was like the first or second year it was at the Royal Exhibition Building. So it was a pretty big beer festival. And I asked if I could do a beer for it. And they said, yeah, absolutely. What are you thinking? 
interested in doing. And I was toying with this idea of brewing a beer in collaboration with my brother. And my brother is a vinegar maker. And so I thought, well, why can't we do something with vinegar and beer? And so we did a balsamic Baltic porter called Acid Freak. <laughs> and, and at the time, it was a pretty cutting edge beer creatively. And so basically, my brother and I worked together on this beer. So I worked together on the base beer. And my brother picked out a good vinegar for it, that sort of thing. And we released this beer at Gab's Festival. And I released it with a what I was was my four range beer at the time, which was even another revolutionary thing. It was called Hop Zone. It was a session IPA, <laughs> you know, that hadn't really been done, a session IPA. And it was like, and I was adamant that that, that was going to be the next big thing, you know. So basically it was, a, it was a bloody delicious beer. It was really hoppy, 5%, bit of kiwi, bit of American hop and, you know, good fun. And, and, and it kind of took off from there. So that was really the start of Brew Cult was in 2013. And Acid Freaks was pretty well received at Gab's Festival. It didn't win the people's choice. Like people can vote on their um, favourite beer and then, you know, there's, there's, and so basically I don't know if you know the premise around Gab's Festival. How it works is there are a number of brand new beers that have never been released before uh, that are actually under embargo and they have to be first tapped at this festival. You're not allowed to pour it anywhere. You're not allowed to sell the beer anywhere else. It has to be tapped at the Gabs Festival first, otherwise you get scratched, right? And so if you can imagine, I think at its peak, there was 175 brand new beers, they're called festival beers, and they serve them on these, on these container bars, which are basically 40-foot containers with literally hundreds of taps. Yeah, you can have a crack at trying 175 beers in three days, good luck to you, but it's become, I suppose... I don't know if you have, you probably have something like it. Like it's like, it's all the beers are extreme beers, right? They're all mad ingredients that go into them. You rarely get things like a Pilsner or a AZ IPA or anything like that. It's just all about really, really extreme beers. Well, to my knowledge, dessert beers and yes, stuff we like don't, that. we don't have anything I like mean, that where it hasn't been tapped before. And, and maybe we do, but not yeah. 175 beers you've never tried anywhere else. It's until amazing, today. isn't that's, it? That's yeah. definitely different. Yeah. It's such a good festival. It's, it's a load of fun. I usually, cause now it travels around Australia. They do Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and my hometown here. And I always travel to Melbourne for the Melbourne one because I, I love the venue that the Royal exhibition buildings this very opulent wooden floor wooden mezzanine big dome it's just it's stunning and and the atmosphere is amazing and uh, i really love that festival yeah so it sort of started from there and then sort of i was brewing actually gypsy brewed so the, the, the premise around brew cult was it was all gypsy brewing it was going to be all creative beers and that sort of thing you know kind of like you know you see those breweries that do the weekly releases and that sort of thing now and people line up to buy trays of beer it was basically that but way before it's time and you know before i knew it i was brewing or gypsy brewing back at prickly moses and needed some more production capacity. And so um, some colleagues of mine were building a brewery in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And they said, hey, why don't you buy a tank and install it in our brewery and you can make your beer here? There was myself, there was Sean from Killer Sprocket, there was um, Nat and Cal from Kaiju Beer, although they were called Monster Mash at the time. It became this kind of gypsy brewing collective at Cavalier Brewing. And then the bit, you know, I had a 30 hectolitre tank and I ended up buying a second one from a mate of mine. I actually studied at Federation University with him. He was going to start his own thing, but realized that the money side of it was way too much. And he sold me his tank. And so, yeah, we we're brewing out of Cavalier for a while and grew the volume. So basically, I was a gypsy brewer, a contract brewing company, was actually brewing all of the beer myself. So it was a little bit of a point of difference. It wasn't like pick up the phone and say, hey, can you make, you know, 30 hectolitres of 
hop zone session IPA, please. You know, I'd actually be in the brewery, doing the brewing, doing the cellar work, doing the packaging. And then I'd also be out there selling the beer as well. So it was very, very exhausting. Well, that was a question um, I was going to have for you. It's kind of what the financial and logistical setup was. So were you making beer in two different places or was it you gave up the... Um, original one at Prickly Moses and went over to the new place. Yeah, just when I started out, I did the first couple of batches out of Prickly Moses, then moved all the production over to Cavalier. So I came to the realization that I didn't have the time to be able to to deal with all of those things, the, the production and the sales and that sort of thing. So I, basically what I did was I, I didn't really have a choice. I, I was going to say that that was a mistake, but I just didn't have a choice at the time. So it's kind of just happened is that I outsourced all of the sales to not employees, but commission reps, commission reps in Victoria. Then I had a commission rep in Sydney in New South Wales, but probably the better decision that I made was connecting up with my distributor here in Queensland, which was Dan Rickard from Caliber Craft Beer Trading Company. And so basically, before I knew it, I had near on national distribution for a contract brewing, gypsy brewing brand. So there are some inherent challenges with making beer in Australia financially is that the excise, the beer tax here in Australia is really expensive, right? So basically, it is about 50% of the unit cost of making beer is taxed. 50, 50, 50, yeah. Wow. We have a very old antiquated beer taxation system that's 110 years old, maybe 120 years old. No federal government, whatever party they happen to come from, wants to mess with it. So they always fuck around with it at the sides and make it worse. Well, at the time, there were six different tax rates. So there was basically less than 3% alcohol, 3 to 3.5% alcohol, and 3.5% and, and above. And in each of those alcohol brackets, there was the keg rate. So you had to make beer in a vessel greater than 48 and a half litres, just under half a barrel. And then there was the package rate, which was more expensive for, you know, for bottles and cans and 20 litre kegs and 30 litre kegs even at the time. So how it works is they have a, what's called an LAL, which is basically you pay a dollar rate per litre of ethanol that you produce. That's how it works, right? So the higher alcohol your beer, the more the tax is. And so that can make things really, really expensive. And that's why in Australia, we have a real, we gravitate towards, we love what we call mid-strength beer, right? So mid-strength beer in Australia is three and a half percent. That's what we call it. It's a cheap tax rate. You can get a half decent tasting beer. It makes your beer really, really cheap. And you can, and now that it's hot here, you know, because you can smash Right. Day. And you're going to drink 12 anyway. But so. most, I'm going to drink 12, exactly. But most beers are in, you know, sort of between 4 and 5%, you know, session beers, but mid-strength is a big thing. So I was brewing beer, had this, had commission reps all over and distributors all over the country, end up bringing on South Australia and, and later Western Australia and that sort of thing. It basically was, was really hard work because I was brewing beer at, almost no profit on credit terms. So I had no tap room, you know, no ability for retail margin and retail cash flow. It's like, there's your beer, give me your money. None of that. All my beer was being sold on credit term, you know, but for, you know, distributor here in Queensland where it was one invoice for the whole state. Now I found myself in the position where I'm chasing bills, chasing invoices, getting paid, what are trying, the, trying to get paid. What are the terms like in Australia here? For the most part, some of the AB guys and the larger distributors will pay cash or, or even very close net terms, but I've seen 30 and I haven't seen more than that. What was your net terms? Yeah, mine mine was 14 days, but no one ever paid 14 days. Right, it's just the legal part of it. Distributors got slightly longer terms because it was one invoice, it was less work, and that's fine. But yeah, it's mostly 14 days. So you think about the, the, the cumulative workload that's happening there. So you're making the beer, doing the brewing, doing the cellaring, doing the packaging, 
Then you're out trying to assist the, the commission reps in selling the beer, assist the distributors in selling the beer, issuing invoices to the 3PL, the third-party logistics, like a warehouse that does all your beer deliveries and that sort of thing, then trying to chase up bills to get paid. And I was doing it solo. It was mad. I don't know what the hell I was thinking at the time. <laughs> I just thought I'd be making some cool beers and people would buy them and, and everyone, everything would be good. But Well, that was actually my next yeah, question. It, so I wanted to talk about how you kind of like, you, you basically had a beer idea. And you worked in a brewery and you were able to sort of manufacture that while you worked there. And I've talked to some other breweries and I've seen some other breweries that did that where the basically the head brewer, the assistant brewer was able to kind of like co-pack in their own facility. And then they finally went out and then things moved so damn fast that they were like, holy shit, I kind of just had this idea, less so a business model, different plan. And so my next question, which I'm going to ask you after the break, you know what? I'm not going to ask you. I'm going to ask you after the break. Let's take a quick break right now. We'll be right back. the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standard you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, so welcome back. So the question that I had is, and I think from listening to the story, it sounds to me a lot like, this was really fucking cool. This is really different and unique in the market. And then you had a super long run where you, we could run, make beer. And then one day you turn around and went, holy shit, I haven't figured out really how to make a business out of this. And that sounds kind of like what you're about to say. Oh, you hit the bloody nail on the head, mate. Yeah. Like, you know, in hindsight, I, I had no fucking idea how a brewing business worked. I was, I'm a brewer. I still am, you know. <laughs> the way that I look at a brewing business is if you want to sell beer, you've got to make the beer, you've got to sell the beer, you've got to have a sales force, you've got to do the logistics around beer, delivering beer and all that sort of stuff. And then you've got to do the financials, which means getting paid on time and making sure that your business is profitable. And I was just good at making the beer. And I started this business solo because I, I, I honestly just had a vision of just making some cool beer. Yeah, to be fair, I guess it outgrew what I, I had originally anticipated. It started off that way, you know. I started doing some really cool beers and being a brewing company that was solely revolved around seasonal beers worked pretty good because all my seasonal beers were being released in 500 mil bottles, which were quite profitable because it was a seasonal beer. So it was really, it was so well geared towards the consumer because They'd be happy to go spend $10 on a 500 mil bottle. I know that you were probably going to go, fucking what? But yeah. We used to have them here. It wasn't reasonable. No, 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 we don't. And it was such a good format because the packaging was really cheap and it was actually profitable to be able to do that. Whilst I was a Cavalier, you know, brewing at Cavalier, that model worked really well because it was a pretty shitty bottling machine we had. But for doing 500 mil bottles, you could empty a tank in a day and, and it would be okay. And what I could do is I could pre sell a batch of beer, a tank of beer, pre-sell it to my distributor, have pre-sales with my commission reps and that sort of thing, package the beer, ship the pallets where they needed to go and raise invoices and get paid. 
that was kind of cool for a while. And so, yeah, I released a series of five beers called the Psychedelic Series. They're all IPAs. They're all very common. They all had the same starting gravity and all that sort of thing. There was Can't Fight the Funk, which was a farmhouse IPA. There was Buggin' Out, which is a black IPA. There was Keep on Truckin', which is a red IPA. Superfly, which was a rye IPA. Out of Sight, which was a white IPA. That series was amazing because all the bottles, they, they all had a very similar branding. It gave the Brewcop brand some commonality and people understood it and some brand loyalty and that sort of thing. And I could re-release those beers you know, twice a year and they would sell out because people loved them and that sort of And the other odd one-off beers in there, you know, doing like an English IPA and just stuff that just interests me, interested me at the time. One of my favourites was probably a beer called Beer Geek Rage Quit. It was a, it was a beer that I wanted to do a lager because I've always, I've always enjoyed lager and I wanted to do an India Pale Lager, which at the time as well hadn't really been heard of, you know, never, no one had really heard of a, a hoppy lager or anything like that. This was like, what, 14, 16, so, something like that? Yeah, yeah. So this was probably, yeah, 2014, 2015, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, and so I did a collaboration with my good friend, Matt Hoffman, who is a photographer. And that's that photo that you sent me this morning of me being a model uh, in, in a brewery. It's pretty damn funny. And um, there's, a whole, there's, there's a whole bunch of other photos in that series. And we actually even hired an actual model, Hannah, and she we shot some stuff in a bar. It was just hilarious right and so we did this beer called beer geek rage quit and all, there was basically a series of four different covered labels and i actually had my mate matt hoffman's face on it being him being an alternative model because he was really busy on social media at the time trolling the alternative model scene and him deciding to be an alternative model himself and there's a scene there's an alternative model scene yeah. i didn't know that you know, um, <laughs> There's a scene for everything, man. I guess there is, sure. And, and so he would do all these alternative model things. Like he, there was this one where he'd be like, he was. He actually got picked up by a big um, clothing brand, where he's just like he's a big boy, right? And he's just basically got a really tight, you know, midriff and some tight black black tights on and that sort of thing. And he's doing a mirror selfie and looking sexy and all this stuff. Anyway, it was hilarious, and I said, well, we'll just make a beer out of it. So there's four different labels, and then what I did was a bit of a Willy Wonka thing. So my label printer at the time, Robbie Watkins, who's an absolute champion, I said, can we do something where we have these gold labels, and we do maybe five of them? And so we randomly placed these gold labels in, it became, and, and then did a thing on social media. It was like, find a gold label, win a T-shirt sort of thing. Yeah, that that really sort of raised the awareness of the Brucol brand on social media. People taking photos of the beers and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it was pretty, it was it was good fun, you know, at the time. It was really, really good fun. And then, you know, doing lots of beer festivals as well. You know, we've got a pretty, pretty well, we've had at the time a pretty healthy sort of a beer festival scene. I'd be traveling to Sydney for Sydney Craft Beer Week, Brisbane for Brews Vegas. We had Good Beer Week in Melbourne. I'd go to Bendigo for Bendigo on the Hop, just having a great time. And that became my life, you know, it was just making beer, selling beer, going to beer festivals, having a good time. I had no fucking money. I had no idea how I ate. <laughs> no idea whatsoever. So still, but, um, it wasn't profitable throughout the whole time. It was obviously revenue generated, but it wasn't just like, you know, Anheuser-Busch money no. or Foster's money or whatever you want to see down there. No, but. shit. No, no. no. I, I still to this day don't know how I actually managed to draw even the meager, meager wage that I drew. But what how was I actually it? managed to not. What was the scene like? I am curious about that. So you, you kind of started this thing in 2013 in Australia. Yep. And I've done very little research into the market in Australia outside of just kind of following some different guys on Facebook and, and um, Instagram and looking into it, but were other breweries doing 
similar style of beers because from my very limited research, it appears that they were kind of not and it was a little bit cutting edge. No, the the, the breweries that actually had a physical presence were focused on, you know, core, typical core range, you know, lagers and pale ales and yacht IPA and that sort of thing. It was those who were gypsy brewing, like my, my colleagues, you know, Kaiju Beer, Nat and Cal, you know, their, their debut beer was a 9.6% you know, triple IPA that was just loaded with hops and it was a very, very good beer. But And they had some really good visuals on their labels and stuff like that, and that really worked. Sean from Killer Sprocket, who was, who was at um, Cavalier as well, he was a very malt-driven brewer and he was doing his amber ale, which was like, you know, all Munich malt and all that sort of stuff. So it was a really creative stuff going on. But those who actually had a physical presence were not doing that sort of thing. And so at the time, I suppose you could say that that was the gap in the market that gypsy brewers were really exploiting at the time. And as the physical breweries started to cotton on to the fact that they could actually brew seasonal beers, <laughs> be low-volume, high-margin beers, that then it started to become a little bit more competitive and that sort of thing um and it started to become you know a bit of a race as to who could be more extreme with what they were doing and that sort of thing so you know it was certainly you know looking back at that brew cult the types of beers that was doing they were great beers but there was no way that it was it was it was only ever going to service a niche Mm -hmm. and the ability for that niche to grow was very limited whereas you know if you look at it now it's about having broad appeal and, and, and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, it was very different, different days. Yeah. So technically then the idea was brew something different, unique, extreme and outside the box on purpose. Did you even really have a flagship? Let's draw a line in his hand previous to the bar you opened, but previous to that, did you do a flagship? Was there a blonde ale or a shitty cream ale in the mix at all? <laughs> Hop Zone was basically the only flagship beer in there and that was just something that was kind of the, the beer that was always available and so it was always hop zone and a seasonal that happened to be going at the time or a one-off beer that happened to be going at the time i then brought on a mid-strength so you know my distributor in queensland said if you do a mid-strength beer this will work really well up here and i said cool so we came up with this beer called reset robot which was basically a three and a half percent pale ale took a couple of couple of batches to get it right but once we got it right we had a really cracking little very very crushable beer did really well up here in queensland because we fucking love mid-strength up here that was basically it as far as a core range goes it was yeah that was it okay so a couple of numbers questions obviously this is different for me so Forgive me if I'm step one, I'm not great at math, but two, I'm stepping into an area I don't know with Australian beer scene. How did the tax base work? So you said it was 50% tax. So what was that number based upon? And, and I guess let's start with maybe if you can remember a specific beer you sold by the case and how much of that was taxes versus the number that you sold. And yeah, I, and so, I agree, and I'm asking um, you to think back in time. Yeah, no, that's okay. So basically, rough numbers at the time for Hop Zone, the 5% session IPA. We would do a 50-litre keg of that, and the tax was around $65. <laughs> I'm trying to do the math in my head. This is not finished. Please, yeah, I'm sorry. About 50, about 50 bucks American um, for on just tax on that on that keg of beer. And on a case of 330-mil bottles, I don't know what it is in freedom units, I'm sorry, the tax on the same beer, the same 5% beer, was about 12 or $13 on a, a case. So the struggle point that I'm trying to figure out, and obviously that's the entire point of the podcast, right? Like how not to start a damn brewery, how to learn from failure so what we could do better. If I'm consulting with a brewery, and I'm not, but if I'm consulting with a brewery in Australia 
and they're saying, hey, I want to open a brewery and teach me how to make money. I don't fucking get it. Like, I don't know how you can make money paying 50 bucks a keg. What did you sell them for? I mean, it would have to be, in a sense, I know the margins of American brewers based on ingredients going in and what you can sell for. Mm-hmm. And we don't make $50 in profit. No, you don't in Australia either. And so basically when you take into account a keg of beer, right, I would sell that for around $280. And so that beer would cost about $180 to produce, including the excise. That's X works, right, so at the brewery. Mm. Then you've got to ship it to the to the customer. Then you've got to pay your commission rep. And then what's left over is what's left over. So I think probably I was probably making about somewhere between $30 and $50 gross profit. Egg. Then I, then I, then my overhead start. Yeah, and that's with you making the beer, right? So you also... That's me personally making the beer, yes. How did that relationship work? So did you pay a rental fee basically to the brewery that you were in and then you went and made it? In the United States, we, yeah. have, we have a lot of contract brewers and typically... They're a per case situation. So it's, it's you know, I, you produce the beer. It's somewhere between three and 10 bucks a case when I get it back. And that's, yes. or CE, case equivalent based on kegs or whatever. But few of them have done what you're talking about. And it's always kind of negotiable. And I'm curious how you negotiated that and what worked for you. So Yeah. So we most contract brewing in Australia works similar way. A copac co- fee, we mm-hmm. call it. There'll be a keg copac fee and a, a, a case copac fee and that sort of thing. At Cavalier, it was a little bit different because I owned the tanks. I basically paid a fixed rental per month to have the tanks there and get you know, pay the pay the, the municipality and water and electricity and all sorts of stuff. And then we paid a per litre top of that of what we produce and then a bill for excise because as a contract brewer slash gypsy brewer, you don't have an excise licence. You have to use your host brewery's excise licence, right? Now, at the time, it wasn't really much of an issue because it was it was a level playing field. There was a small rebate that the federal government would give you. It was only $10,000 a year at the time, right? But the but with the financials here in Australia, with the way that the tax system is set up and the way that COPAC fees work as a contract brewer, it's not possible to make money. Oh, in addition, the excise as well. It's not possible to make money, right? Even if you grow, right? It's not cheaper to produce product because now in Australia, that annual excise rebate is now $350,000, not $10,000. So in effect, more or less, that means that you don't pay any excise on your first 250,000 litres of beer that you produce per year. Okay, No tax at all now, but you have to own a physical brewery to get access to that. Really? And gypsy brewers, yeah, you have to have what's called a, man- a manufacturer's license. And gypsy brewers don't, and contract brewers do not have a manufacturer's license. So in Australia, you find yourself in this situation where no matter how much you grow your volume, right, your unit costs do not get any cheaper. There is no economies of scale, not on your raw materials, not on your packaging, not on your copac fees, nothing, right? There is no economies of scale. So your unit costs go up linear with your revenue, okay? So there's no increase in profitability the more, more volume you make. And on top of that, you don't get the $350,000 per year refund. So you're immediately at a disadvantage to anyone who owns stainless steel from your very first litre of production. And I have lots of people that ring me up and say, Hendo, we want to do what you did. We want to, we want to, this is how the conversation goes. It's the fucking same every time, right? And I'm just going to refer them to this podcast, mate, because <laughs> fucking seriously, it's, I don't mind telling the story, but. But this makes it so much easier. Like a hundred right? so times, the right? Conversation, <laughs> the conversation, go, I, I'm happy to do it. I, re- I genuinely am. I don't mind doing it. But 
but this might be the extended version. <laughs> and so basically that someone who might be a home brewer or something like that, or someone who's even thinking of building a brewery, they'll ring me up and say, Oh, hey, we're gonna we're thinking of building a brewery and that sort of thing, but we wanna we want a gypsy brew just like you did. It's always just like you did, Hendo. And I'm like, you do know that my business failed. <laughs> like, yeah, but we want to do we want to do just like you did. Okay, and I, and I said, well, tell me about what you want to do. And they go, oh, we want to have five different beers and we want to gypsy brew them at, at such and such a brewery and that sort of thing. And I said, why would you want to do that? My, the conversation usually goes, all right, so what sort of beers are you going to do? They go, oh, we're going to do a lager and a pale ale and an IPA and a porter and that sort of thing. And we're going to gypsy brew them all. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Where are you going to sell these beers? Oh, we're going to sell them into bottle shops and that sort of thing. Oh, okay, cool. So let, And then I'd go through a conversation of basically – saying, okay, so what do you think the recommended retail price of a six-pack of your beer, your pale ale, is going to be? And they go, oh, we can, we can definitely do it for 20 bucks. Fucking unheard of these days, right, to do a, do a six-pack for $20 unless you're really, really big. And I'd go, okay, cool, $20. Okay, so that means, you know, and I'd say basically all the bottle shops, they have a um, a pretty fixed margin, a way to calculate it. You know, it's 35% they'll put on for a case and, a, you know, sorry, for a, for a six-pack of 17 35% for a single, it's like 25% for a six-pack, and it's about 15% for a carton, particularly sell a carton, right? And so basically I would say to them, I can reverse engineer in any bottle shop what that, what that bottle shop paid for that carton of beer, right? And I'll, I'll say, if you're going to do $20, that means you're selling your, your case of beer for about $50 to $55. And then I would start to reverse engineer, okay, a bottle costs $0.22, cents. Crown costs one and a half cents. You need 24 of those, right? A six-pack cradle, that costs about 60 cents. You need four of those, right? Then you've got the CDS, the container deposit scheme. So we have to pay 13 cents so that people can get 10 cents back on the bottle. So you've got that. That's $3.60 a case. And, that's sort of and all of a sudden, I'm deducting this from the $55, right? And all of a sudden, we get to the point where either they're in the negative or they're very close to it. And, and about raw materials and all that sort of stuff. And we, we've, we've deducted this from $55 and the number's either very close to fucking zero, zero. And I said, all we've done so far is make the beer and put it on the pallet in the brewery ready to ship. We haven't put it on a truck to transport somewhere. We haven't paid a sales rep. We haven't paid you. And already you're making no money. Are you really sure you want to fucking do this? <laughs> and all of a sudden they're like, oh, right, okay. And I said, look, you know, what is your motivation for wanting to start Gypsy Brewing? They go, oh, we want to get the brand out there. And that's the thing. Every fucking time it's like, oh, I want to get the brand out there. No one gives a fuck about your brand, right? The thing is, if you want to get the brand out there, do it when you actually have a brewery. Well, do it uh, profitably. That's when you start getting your brand out there. Either way, you still make do money. it profitably, exactly. Yeah. Of course, yeah. You've got, to, you've got to think of this like a like a business, that sort of thing. And and because the thing is, is that no one is loyal to brands anymore, Right. And maybe I could have gotten away with that had had, had Brewcolder gone down the path of actually building a brewery and that sort of thing. Sure, at the time, yes, we had an established brand. We could have turned it into a physical presence and that would have worked. Fucking not in 2023, man. You know, no one, no one cares about your brand. No one cares because I've got too much choice. How many um, breweries are in uh, Australia? At the moment, oh, I think breweries and brewing companies, I think it's around seven or 800. That's insane to to say that in Australia yeah. and you, the US has almost ten thousand, and people still try to tell yeah. me that that's not the case here. Oh, we can go to twelve. We can go to thirteen. Mm-hmm. No, no, you can't. We're not. I don't know. No, <laughs> I don't think so. It's a really interesting conversation that I have, and then also like a lot of people go, "Okay, I want to build a brewery." Right. So look, I'm not a. I don't sell stainless steel. I'm not a. I'm not a um, brewery engineer. 
Um, but I will talk to people about the business of, of starting a brewery in Australia. And I say to them, what sort of brewery do you want to be? Uh, do you want to be like a tap room or do you want to sell your beer into the wholesale market, into bottle shops and pubs and restaurants and stuff like that? And they go, oh, we want to be in Dan Murphy's, right? That's the, that's what I hear really, really common. Dan Murphy's is one of the big box liquor stores that's owned by the mate, one of the major supermarket chains here and they're huge. And it's like, okay, so you're going to sell your beer into Dan Murphy's. So let's say that all things go well. You get your beer, you, you manage to have the meeting with the guy from Dan Murphy's and you get raging, which is basically they've got a planogram. You know how it works when you're in mm-hmm. retail and stuff like that. And, you know, let's say you have the meeting and you negotiate your price and you get your planogram and you start selling your beer into Dan Murphy's. Fucking good on you, mate. All of a sudden, now you're selling your beer on credit terms and usually those credit terms are upwards of uh, around 100, up to 180 days, 120, 180 days. Seriously? Can be, yeah. They, they're a little bit better, but at least minimum, minimum 60 days credit term. But let's say you have a successful and so brand have- and you're selling it in at 60-day terms. If your brand's successful, you should be delivering to that place, what, eight times during that period? Exactly. And that's the conversation that I have. So so the thing is, right, as I say, I say to these people, it's like, okay, so you've made a batch of beer. You've then sold the beer and you've raised an invoice. You have no cash in your bank account. You spend all your money making beer. And then Dan Murphy's, they want more beer whilst you're waiting for them to pay you for the very first shipment of beer that you sent them. Where's that money going to come from? And they're like, and I'm like, that's my point. And <laughs> in Australia, you know, like I, and I said, I said, you're, I said, let's talk about profitability. That's cash flow, right? Cash flow is one thing. Profitability is another thing when it comes to the financials. Let's have a chat about your profitability, right? If you're a brewing company that sells into the wholesale market here in Australia, the best profit, net profit you can make is about 6%, right? 6%. And that, that's on a good day. And that's tight. And in 2023, you're better off taking that money and stick it in a fucking term deposit in a bank. You'll make more money, but less work. Well, PayPal's paying yeah, 4.3% right now just on savings at PayPal. <laughs> like- yeah, exactly. You can, and it's just like, do that. Spend your money. Go. Don't put it in there, you know, and 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 so I don't have any hesitation or any regret about having a real conversation about, you know, to anyone who wants to have a conversation with me about the reality of starting a brewing business because it's fucking hard, man, you know. And, and, I, and I basically say to, to people who have aspirations, you know, I basically take, I rip the rose-coloured glasses off and give them a real reality check as to what it's like to have a brewing business in Australia. It's fucking hard, man. And I, and I basically say to them, my, my statement is this, right, is that if you don't mind lying in bed at night, awake, wide awake, thinking about how you're going to pay your next excise bill, which is due at the end of the week and you've got almost no money in your bank account, and that doesn't bother you, Welcome aboard. Come and join us. It's a great, fun industry, and you'll have an awesome time. But if you seem pretty passionate about making beer, and if you just enjoy making beer and making it for your friends and you're having fun brewing and that sort of thing, no harm in that. It's cheaper. Less stress. (laughs) True. All right. Well, on that note, I want to hear about some of the good times, some of your favorite memories of the time that you spent selling beer. But. Let's take a quick break first, because I, I need a beer. Yeah. I, know, I don't know if you guys drink down in Australia, but I'd like to have another beer during this interview, and I'll be right back. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a beer, but I'm going to get a non-alcoholic beer. So. Nice. Good job. All right. I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> if he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like 
y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender post. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, so welcome back. So again, this is a podcast that's all about like what can go wrong and what we can learn from it. But if anything, we should be able to celebrate the wins. And as a guy who has started a unique and interesting brewery in the days when the Australian craft beer scene wasn't overly unique and interesting, you traveled the country, you had to have some fucking killer memories and some great times. Like what were some of the wins, right? <laughs> Do you know how I celebrate my wins? I just crack a beer. I just go, look at that. And it reminds you. I've got a non-alcoholic beer. Um, this is actually one of my students. So I know I talk about my students. This is a non-alcoholic beer from a brewery called Sober, S-O-B-A-H. They're 100% non-alcoholic brewery. They've actually just opened a, a physical brewery down the Gold Coast. And this is their trop- tropical lager correlation. So it's like an IPL, but non-alcoholic. Interesting. Delicious. Good times. Okay. My, my two favorite times whilst I ran Brew Cult. Well, the first one was in 2015 for Gab's Festival, as we talked about before. I released a beer called Milk and Two Sugars. And so basically... I had an idea. I'd done a few Gabs beers in the lead up to it, did Acid Freaks. The next year, I did a beer called Pepper Steak Porter. Actually, the full name of the beer was Pepper Steak Porter, a vegan beer experience. <laughs> so basically, it was a beer that tasted like pepper steak, but it was actually vegan, which was pretty cool. The label was excellent. It had like basically a picture of a steak and then it had the little stamp that said vegan. <laughs> so smoked or like smoke the barbecue. Yeah. Yeah, smoke bomb. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So in 2015, did a beer called milk and two sugars and i'd had a vision for this beer for at least two years and about six or eight months before gab's festival my local watering hole was connected with a coffee roaster in melbourne now melbourne as a city is a massive coffee city right it's just good coffee is what it's about right and so i got connected up with dave macon from axel coffee roasters we had a conversation about a beer that we were going to make and it was going to be this sort of to describe milk and two sugars it was basically a coffee pastry stout before pastry stout was pastry stout. That makes sense. It was 8%, shitload of lactose in it, and it was basically a pastry stout and with coffee. Connected up with Dave Macon, and we did a cupping session. We tried weird shit and regular old Brazilian coffee and all that sort of stuff, and, and we sort of came up with a coffee, and then we got together again a few weeks later, and we would, and I made a batch of the, a pilot batch of, a 20-litre batch of the, the base beer that I was thinking of doing for this, and we got together again, and we were blending the different extraction so we had cold drip and espresso and filter coffee and all that sort of stuff to work out how we we're going to get this coffee infusion in and this is six months before the um the festival so a lot of preparation went into this beer and we kind of came to the realization that cold drip coffee had really good good flavor but not a lot of aromatics and the espresso had really good aromatics but could become bitter and when it became oxidized and stuff like that and so we did a mixture of both 
right? That's what we end up doing was cold, cold drip and espresso. So then we sort of got the portion of coffee right. And basically I scaled up the recipe and I said, oh, we're going to need you know, this many litres of espresso and this many litres of cold drip coffee. And so the espresso for a 30 hectolitre batch turned out to be 4,000 shots of coffee. (laughs) How'd you make that? 4,000 shots. Well, luckily, Dave Macon, he has a, um, a barista training academy. And so basically he's got this teaching room with a half a dozen coffee machines where he teaches students how to make espresso. So he locks a whole bunch of students in this room for like four fucking days to do 4,000 shots of espresso, and it was just phenomenal. And he did the cold drip as well. He brought it out to the brewery when he had the bright beer and that sort of thing. We made this beer. We blended the coffee in, right, carved it up, tasted it, and went, fuck, this is really good. Right? It was just really good beer. And so under embargo for Gab's Festival, but you're allowed to talk about the beer on social media to put some heat into it and that sort of thing. The key thing about Gab's Festival is because there's 175 beers they pre-release the beers that are going to be at the festival. You've just got to do the social media to make sure you get on the must-try list for all the punt punters out there because they can't try them all, right? And a lot of people tried it. And that was around the time that Brew Cult did a rebrand. So we rebranded. We had Jimmy, this little sort of cartoon character guy, and we released a four-beer core range. So much fucking work went into this for Gab's Festival. And then we had a stand at Gab's Festival as well with all the new branding and that sort of thing. And so there was a really a lot of new messaging that was going into the Brewcop brand in addition to this really, really well done Gab's Festival beer and that sort of thing. And it just, just lit up. It was just phenomenal. People were just posting on socials, just raving about the beer, which got more people to want to try the beer and, and it just really snowballed. It was just phenomenal. And that festival in Melbourne, and I did it in Sydney as well. And we, we took the stand up to Sydney for Sydney Gabs as well. We're right in the middle and lo and behold, at the end, so they have the People's Choice Award, lo and behold, at their last session of Gab Sydney, Milk and Two Sugars got announced as the People's Choice. I think that year was 125 beers in festival beers in Gab's Festival. That was huge, absolutely huge. I had never, like I never did sports in school or anything. I don't fucking want anything in my life, you know. I just do stuff, you know, and keep myself busy and interested and all that sort of thing and did you actually a, win something. Did you get a trophy? Got this big like trophy. A yeah. yeah. This, this, they, they basically had this perpetual trophy, which was like a 50-litre keg cut in half with plaques and that sort of thing. You know, so I've got a plaque on that trophy. Don't know where it is now. Yeah, it was amazing. And all of a sudden, everyone wanted to try milk and two sugars. And I'd only made enough for, you know, one tank worth for Gab's Festival and a few cartons to go to my distributors and that sort of thing. And they're like, fuck, we've sold it. We need more. And it was just really undersupplied the market. So I managed to get another batch in. I didn't realize that 4,000 shots and 120 odd liters of cold drip was, was a lot of money in coffee. Plus the labor was about 10 grand of coffee to go into this 30 hectare tank of beer. But Dave's logo was on the label. So he's like, yeah, I'll do you one more, but that's all I could get out of him. He says, I'll do you one more, but that's it. And so we made one more batch and, and that was it. And that time, so if you want to talk about good times, that time that I won the People's Choice was amazing. It was such a high. It really felt like that I had created a presence in the industry. They made your mark, from a, literally. From a, it yeah. made my mark in the industry, exactly. You know, I was doing my thing and they're going, oh, that's the weird bloke in the corner that makes all of the, you know, the vinegar beers and that sort of thing. But then it was something that even from an industry perspective, right, if I cast my mind back to before I actually became a professional brewer, I remember going to the Australian International Beer Awards award ceremony and only, and there's 800 people in the room and knowing two people. And they were my teachers. And all of a sudden, I created something where even 
very established industry people who I knew and respected were coming up to me going, fuck, that was a really good beer, Hendo, you know? And I'm like, shit, you know, it was phenomenal. The hype and the buzz that went into the brand after that was amazing. We had, you know, had such a good time touring that beer around and that sort of thing and going to all of the beer festivals and stuff like that afterwards and and making different beers later was huge, you know, and it was a real high. That was probably the first one. The second one was when I won that trophy there, the black one, which is the busted off. So that is the Australian International Beer Awards champion Gypsy Brewer for 2016. One of the things that I had worked on, so at the time when Milk and Two Sugars came out, we did the rebrand and we did a four-beer core range, right? So there was the a lager, Pop Zone, the Session IPA. There was Reset Robot, the Mid-Strength, and there was a beer called Thanks Captain Obvious, which was the IPA. That was So Thanks Captain Obvious was a beer that I had worked on for many years, refining my skills around IPA. And again, going back to the Southern Bay and Hop Hog and wanting to make a beer as good as Hop Hog. And when I was at that first Australian International Beer Awards awards ceremony, knowing two people in the room of 800 and seeing Hop Hog win the champion beer, I was really inspired in that moment. I think that was probably 2007, I think it was, maybe 2008. And I was really inspired because I saw Brendan Varris, who was the owner of uh, Feral Brewing at the time. And I was like, I want to make a beer as good as that. I want to be, I want to make a beer as good as that brewer. He didn't know me and I didn't really know him, but I just saw this IPA and went, and I've tried the beer and I went, I want to make a beer as good as that. And so for years I'd refined IPA, IPA, IPA. And thanks Captain Obvious was like, the best version of that beer ever. And in 2016, and entered it into the Australian International Beer Awards and it got a gold medal for American Style Strong Pale Ale, which is what it was, right? Because it won a gold medal and because some of the other beers that I've won also got medals, you go into contention for the champion breweries. They have champion small, medium and large mm-hmm. brewery, but this is the first year they had champion gypsy brews for a contract and I won it. I won a trophy. And again, I never played sports as a kid and, and here I am with another fucking trophy and i'm like what the hell is going on here this is crazy and that was huge in the industry because that was what built my reputation as a professional brewer was again having my my peers in the industry come up to me and go fuck that is a really good beer man you know really good job and i'm like it's have fun <laughs> i'm just enjoying myself and i'm making some good beer i'm working my ass off i don't make any money but I'm enjoying the beer that I make. So in the next section, or possibly the one after, because it turns out we may run out of time, we're going to talk a little bit about like the education piece of what you're doing now. But let's let's hit that for a yes. second. You said you hit that IPA recipe multiple times throughout the years. You were inspired to do something great because you saw the great brewery. What do you think set that IPA apart from the other IPAs people would taste? And, and was that a unique thing that you had created? Or was it just dialing in the flavors in a way that no one else had thought of? If I was to think about the liquid itself, I would say that that's probably around the time when professional brewers stopped focusing on IBUs as the main driver as a quality IPA. I remember the back when I was at Prickly Moses, the first IPA recipe that I developed was a beer called the Raconteur IPA. And it was a motherfucking bittering beast, man. It was huge, right? They I remember still make going that and selling it. They do, they yeah. do. I know. I'm sure it's different now and I hope it is because fucking hell, it was bitter as fuck. <laughs> but I remember going into, how's this, right? I remember going and selling it. So I was with, with Luke and we go into one of the premier beer bars in Melbourne into Beer Deluxe, right? And Siobhan Karen, who was the beer buyer there at the time, and she's in the Independent Brewers Association now. And I remember walking in there and she's the beer buyer and, and, she, and she gets 
fucking brewers come in all the time trying to sell all the latest beers and that sort of thing. And we sort of say, yeah, we've got this uh, IPA. It's, you know, it's got Simcoe and Centennial and Cascade in it and that sort of thing. And she's like, she's trying to make it really hard for us to sell this. She goes, how many IBUs has it got? And I'm like, 72. And she's like, oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll take, take it. it. <laughs> Shabon, you can't so hide. It was just yeah, so funny. I was just like, I just love that memory. And so I think how my knowledge of IPA changed was really that shift to lots of late editions and whirlpool editions and very, very small bittering charges, you know, tiny, tiny bittering charges, lots of dry hop and that sort of thing. That's really what Thanks Captain Obvious had become. It'd be, it had turned from this really bitter beast with lots of crystal malt you know as well so i was really malty and really bitter to something that was more balanced and nuanced and refined and it was simcoe citra and centennial it was at the time so it was all american and was just a real crush it was like 5.8 percent abv i know that's probably not ipa in american terms but it's it is for australians and stuff like that it was a good beer you get the batches of that right it would just be nice hoppy aromatic nothing out there like it and people just really thoroughly enjoyed drinking it. Stylistically, it just ticked all the boxes as far as an American-style strong pale ale. Well, congrats. That's obviously cool that you were able to win that award. Thank you. But yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't ask the obvious business question. So in the United States, Galaxy, Nelson Sauvin, it's the most expensive hops that we can get. Is Centennial and Simcoe yes. expensive there because <laughs> you've got to ship it from the United States? Well, it's a global market. So mm-hmm. I, I would probably say that we're paying the same price. Yeah, the freight's not a huge part of it, I don't think. We get destroyed on Galaxy here it's definitely been one of the most expensive hops and while it's oh, really? a great hop it alone doesn't sell a beer so you know what i mean but oh, man we're swimming and we're swimming in galaxy here i shove it in my pillow right at night, so much okay. of it and like it, it helps me it helps me sleep I'm, I'm gonna try that i'm gonna see how it works 20 bucks a pound we'll see what i can come up with but yeah <laughs> that 20 bucks a pound, that's not bad actually that was the um, old spot rate i'm yeah, sure it's worse now <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure it is now it's you know, it's it pops a hops. It's all the global market here. We just pay what they're asking. You had some great wins, and that's you can. No one can take those trophies away, which is the best part. Like no matter whatever happens, but no. Obviously, at some point, things started to change. So what happened? As a gypsy brewer, you didn't have a lot of overhead outside of the fact that you had like a cost basis to produce the product, but it wasn't like you had a physical plant or whatever. So, But anyway, so there was nowhere to hide if sales were to dip. And then obviously sales go up and you've got costs associated with that as well. But where did you start to see the struggle? You said you basically weren't insanely profitable throughout, but then what happened? I would say that the cracks started to appear after the high of milk and two sugars in 2015 wore off and the hype kind of wore off there and that sort of thing we had a four beer core range that now we had to try and sell not realizing that the the unit costs were linear and there was not going to be profitability no matter how much volume we put into it but at the time i was thinking and if we can get to 200,000 litres a year, then we'll be profitable and all sorts of stuff. And it was just this chase of volume, thinking that you would get to a point where you could be comfortable, but in reality, in hindsight, fucking not even close. Just a quick question, but to your point, I think I saw somewhere that you had said that having those core brands was actually a problem because you never had to inventory things before. And all of a sudden, at it's that correct. point, you did because you didn't yes. have distributors essentially that would take. So in the States, if you have excess capacity like that, we'd have a warehouse at the distributor that would handle it. And then a backstock at the retailer, typically, you know, have a shelf and maybe like a case, two cases behind. So you've usually got some inventory in the system, but did you not have that? Correct. 
No, and nor did I manage it particularly well. So your inventory is like is as good as cash in your bank account. Or as bad as not. Um, (laughs) uh, Or as bad as not, exactly. Well, it technically is not, but yeah, it needs to be treated the same, I guess. Going from having two SKUs on the market at once, you know, like one core range beer and one seasonal one-off beer and that sort of thing was manageable. But all of a sudden I had six SKUs on the market and each of those would be available in bottle and keg. And so all of a sudden you've got a dozen SKUs happening on the market at any one time, possibly more, right? And so what actually happened was that more cash ended up being tied up in inventory in the business. So what, what a business that was already starved for cash became even more starved because there was more inventory that had to be dealt with. And it was dealt with very, very poorly. And on a, at a personal level, when the hype of, of Milk and Two Sugars sort of wore off and I came down from that personal high that was surrounding it and that sort of thing, I kind of realized that I was fucking tired. Tired. I've been there. I know what you mean. You know? And it was like... Like Forrest Gump when he's like running across America and he just stops and he goes, I'm tired, I'm going to go home. That was that, I actually literally re- reached that fucking Forrest Gump moment, right? And I had, had taken on a business partner around the time, stupidly, probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made is, is I sold 50% of the business, not 49%. 50%, mm. 50-50. So you had an equal uh, when it came to making decisions. To, to a silent partner who put a minimal amount of money into the business, like not enough to grow the business or to build a brewery or anything like that. He didn't understand the business, didn't understand the liquor industry. And as most people do, they, they see it as a vanity project or a folly or that sort of thing. And I got tired and I was saying to him, you know, we'd catch up and I'd say to him, mate, I'm pretty tired. Eh? I think we might have to shut this down because I'm pretty cooked. And he got scared because he saw all his money wrapped up in the business and and, and he thought he was going to lose it. And then I got introduced to who would become my, my second business partner. I won't talk too much about my second business partner because we didn't end things on very good terms. But once he became involved in the business. He had a hospitality background, a liquor industry background, and we decided that we would open a bar. And that kind of renewed my energy in the business. I went, oh, cool. We're taking the business in a new direction. This sounds like a great idea. We were going to originally build a brewery in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, but the municipal regulations were pretty horrendous at the time and it was just going to be too hard, too expensive, that sort of thing. And so we happened across this bar that was for sale in the same suburb and we sort of sat down and we talked about it. It was like, well, we can keep gypsy brewing, but we can generate the retail margin and retail cash flow. This should this should work, right? We can get the best of both worlds. Um, but unfortunately, what happened was we borrowed a lot of money. The business went into a hell of a lot of debt. We borrowed a lot of money to buy that business and to renovate the bar. And at the same time, probably one of the biggest, biggest business and financial mistakes I have ever fucking made in my life was to go down the path of debtor financing or factoring, sometimes it's called. Do you aware of what that is? I'm not sure what you mean by that. So clarify, please. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you call it in, in the US, but we call, we call it debtor financing or sometimes it's called invoice factoring. So basically, if I sell you something and I raise an invoice, I can hand that invoice over to a finance company who will extend a line of credit for 80% of the value of that invoice, which is now cash in my bank account that I can go and use. And then my, my customer pays them and not me. That's how the debt gets repaid. Yeah. Basically selling receivables is, is essentially how we would We're Selling receivables. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Because at the time, you know, in the books, the business had no money in the bank account, but we were owed $140,000. 
And I'm like, fuck, we can unlock that. Imagine what we could do if we could unlock that cash, right? But it turns out that debtor financing companies are fucking loan sharks. They can all eat a dick as far as I'm concerned. And so basically what had happened, if you think about the cash flow cycle of a brewing business, you have cash in your bank account. You then have raw materials in inventory, which you then go and turn into beer in tank, which then turns into beer and package, which you then sell, which becomes an invoice waiting to be paid, which then turns back into cash in your bank that's your fucking cycle, right? Mm-hmm. The faster you can make that cycle happen, the healthier your brewing business is going to be. Unfortunately, what happened was we had all this cash sitting in the invoices waiting to get paid part of the cycle, which then we turned into cash. And, we, and because we had the bar, we went and overproduced we pro- because we had made projections about how much beer we were going to sell in this bar. And we grossly underestimated it. We didn't even hit our worst case scenario. And so basically what had happened is we took all of the money that was in the in the invoice waiting to be paid part and we just transferred it over to finished beer waiting to be sold. I went from an inventory of somewhere between 30 and 50 kegs, for instance, to nearly 500 kegs in inventory. But then you erased your receivables number. So it took time to fill that trough back up basically before it would then liquidate well, into real cash later you eliminated the, the, the 60 the day term was, well that's the thing we were, it was, that beer was was produced to sell at the bar to turn instantly into cash to speed that cycle up but the bar unfortunately blocked because again i don't know i'm a brewer i do not know how to run a fucking hospitality venue but i tell you what i've got a lot of respect for those that do now a huge amount of respect respect for those who run hospitality venues because it's fucking hard man i want to get into exactly what went wrong with that because that is a fascinating piece of the puzzle but let's take a quick break we'll be right back and i want to hear about it so do you ride motorcycles because if you do you want the sickest gear on the planet and simpsonmotorcyclehelmets.com is the site for you Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Okay, so welcome back. So this is a this is a piece of the puzzle that I'm very curious about. And part of it is that in 2023 this is the right answer. So the fact that you dealt with struggles in 2017, and granted, different country, different situation, if you don't mind, I would love to quote what you said when you opened the bar, or I don't remember which which uh, places you were talking about, it, but you talk about Matt Hoffman, and despite his funny yes. looks, he has a history of being involved with several well-known craft beer venues. A, what the fuck did he look like? <laughs> Anyways, go ahead, please. Matt Hoffman actually became <laughs> became the venue manager of the Brucol Bar because uh, he'd worked in a lot of hospitality venues that I'd known and loved over the years up here in Brisbane and down in Melbourne as well. And it was a no-brainer to get him on board as, as the venue manager. Does he and... really look funny? <laughs> so that's Matt. <laughs> and so he would do all these photo shoots and stuff like that. Have a look at this one. This is fucking classic. Here he is in a mermaid outfit. 
<laughs> I'm gonna and listen to, to one that he did. Look at this one. Look at this one. Oh, Matt's this my new one hero. That he did where he's wearing his, his black milk fights and stuff like that's that. Awesome. And there's one where he's like he's like butt naked and that sort of thing. Oh, here's what he here's some of the promo stuff that he did for Beer Geek Rage Quit, where he's like, beer is fashion. That's awesome. And all that sort of stuff. That's the um that's the platinum label that we did on the second release of Beer Geek Rage Quit. Oh yeah. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Like he would just that's the sort of shit that he would do. He would just yeah, he's just amazing, amazing, amazing guy. And very, very funny and just in a way that just he just does these subtle digs on things that he finds funny and it's very deadpan but it's so funny you know and I love that guy a bit where is he now he's he's uh, working at the catfish one of the best best fucking pubs in Melbourne working behind the bar there we're still good mates we don't see each other as often as we used to but we're still good mates and that sort of thing but at the time he was the venue manager for the Brewcop bar there were a few reasons why the bar didn't do very well, probably the main thing was the liquor license that the bar had. We bought a bar that actually had a restaurant liquor license and not a bar liquor license, which means that for whenever the bar was open, we had to have a chef on and hot food available. Mm, that's weird. So that drove up the labor and the energy costs around the venue. We borrowed a lot of money to refurbish bar. We spent a lot of money on stock that we thought that we would sell. I have no idea how to how to be a bar owner and was, you know, relying on my then business partner and we just didn't get enough people through the door. We had a great first week, you know. Uh, I remember the opening night and we had five staff on and two people in the kitchen and we just thought we could sell lots of pizzas and chicken wings and stuff like that and everything would be okay. But people came once but they didn't come back. And it's not because the service was bad or the beer was bad or anything like that. I just, I, I'm not quite sure how, why we just didn't get people through the well, door. It's an interesting question because there's kind of a, like an, I don't know if it's an undercurrent, it's almost like an overcurrent in the US beer scene at least that if you've built kind of like industry demand and like people understand you, there's this proof of concept and then you can build this ridiculously large expansion project and people are just going to come out of the woodworks. So on paper, what you guys did is the model that kind of has worked here. And yes, and yeah. not only is it strange to me it didn't work in that regard, but did you or did you not serve Negronis? We did serve Negronis. So it should have fucking worked. I don't understand. That's bullshit. I yeah. know. I know. I fucking love Negronis. <laughs> that's my favorite <laughs> cocktail. That's a fucking, that's a, you know, Negroni's like a brewer's cocktail, man. That's, that's what fucking brewers drink when they drink cocktails. I'm a fucking big time Negroni fan. I just, I can make Negroni's in my kitchen. It's so good. Yeah, no, it's the best. That's the, that's, um, that's the only cocktail I will drink outside of if I'm not really drinking all of a gin and tonic, but other than that. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same wavelength. Now that's, that's all I'm going to go over Negroni tonight. Going out with some friends. So it's good. Look, we just, we, we had some expectations that we would be selling, you know, 15 to 20 kegs a week. And we never, we never got past seven. And our worst case scenario was 10, right? In our, in our business planning and our business projections. So we just, we didn't really have awareness, right? Because the thing is, right, is that part of it was the liquor license, part of it was the branding. It was the brew cult bar. So it was this bar that was associated with with a beer brand, which was a, a beer brand that had, was a niche brand servicing the, all the beer geeks and stuff like that. 
And there was plenty of other beer geek bars around the area. So we're kind of competing against those places. Those who didn't know craft beer or drank craft beer and didn't really give a fuck, didn't know what Brewcott was. Right? Uh, and, you know, we did lots of good stuff. Like Matt did a fucking amazing job. The service in that place was phenomenal. We did comedy nights. We did, you know, we, we did all sorts of stuff there. And for whatever reason... Um, you know, we did good pizzas, good, the food was good and that sort of thing. So whatever reason, we just couldn't get enough people in the door, right? Problem number one. Problem number two was the liquor license, right? So the liquor license meant that we had to have hot food on sale all the time. And it also meant that we had to close at, I think it was 10 p.m. And were the competitors able to now, stay open later? They could stay up until 1 a.m., right? Oh, that's and so what would happen is our busiest times on a Friday and Saturday night, the place would be fucking packed, Right. With people who'd come to the Brewcult bar for the first time and they were loving the beers and loving the food and that sort of thing. And 10 o'clock rolled around and we'd go, sorry, guys, last drink, see you later. And we'd dump them out on the street in a cold winter's night in Melbourne <laughs> right, on Sydney Road. Now, what do you do? Now, you've got to put yourself in your consumers, you know, the, those punters, right? So they're dumped out on the street. It's quarter past 10 in the evening, right? You're on Sydney Road. You're not really going to go to another place. You know, you want to drink until 1 a.m., but you're not really going to, and you fizzle out the night for those, right? And so what do those people do? They don't fucking come back, right? So we had the wrong liquor license for that place. And we could have fixed that, but doubt it would have changed too much, might have changed a little bit. You know, personally, my lack of understanding as to how a hospitality venue works, I had no idea. I still don't have idea. No fucking idea. My business partner had an idea, but, you know, all the while I was still making the beer and selling the beer into the wholesale market and expected to run, you know, do the financials of the the brewing and wholesale part of the business and be a bar owner at the same time. I, c- I couldn't do all those jobs. Just two well. full-time jobs. And yeah, so, it's not possible. Yeah, yeah. it's three full-time jobs at and least, I wound up yeah. fucking all three up, you know. <laughs> and so that was that was hard. Bar lasted, I think, seven months, I think it was, and probably the worst worst day of my life, you know, one of the worst days of my life was the day that we sort of like, you know, we're, there was lots of plans to try and salvage the business in the end, you know, find new investors, you know, something like that. We actually had a batch of beer in the tank. At, we were brewing at Kaiju by then because we'd left Cavalier. Had a batch of Can't Fight the Funk in the tank at Cavalier. All the hype was built up into re-releasing this beer. Everyone was ready for it. And we ran the business in such a way that there was two sides to the business. The hospitality side and there was the wholesale side. They were very, very separate, but they were the same entity. Probably another mistake. They should have been separate business entities. But... Um, we couldn't pay the excise for this batch of beer. And we had to pay it when the beer was released. And it came to be that, like, there was no way out, right? And we had all – there was all these crazy harebrained schemes to get cash to get this batch of beer out, that sort of thing. And in the end, it didn't work. And we had 50 hectolitres of perfectly good and very, very tasty beer that got put down the drain. Just because you couldn't sell it? We could, no, because we couldn't pay the excise. Hmm. There's a question about the excise since you had – you went from the gypsy brew model where it was essentially 50% to opening a tasting room. In the States, the tasting room pays its own excise as a bar. Did you pay it twice or, or two different? No, 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 no. So beer is made at manu- beer's taxed at manufacture. And then once you take uh, it Australia. to the bar, the bar doesn't pay tax? No, no. You pass no. that cost on, okay. but, but it's included in the price of the keg. And so this perfectly good batch of beer went down the drain We'd already paid for the raw materials. I knew at that moment that that was the end of Brewcop in that moment because enough revenue that was tied up, potential revenue was tied up in that liquid 
was now never going to be realized as revenue. And that was, that broke the cash flow cycle of the business. And from that point, you know, when a business gets into hardship, it's a slow, slow train wreck. I hear that all the time. Of, like every business fails it's slowly. It's a very slow train wreck. Yeah. yeah. It's a very slow train wreck where you start to not pay your invoices on time and they get a little bit later and a little bit later and then things get a little bit more desperate and, and all of a sudden then you're not paying staff entitlements and all that sort of stuff that you can get away with just to keep things going. But the fact of the matter is, you know, you know, we've got pretty clear clear laws here about trading whilst insolvent and that sort of thing. And people fucking skirt that all the time. It's not just brewing industry. And we got to a point where I was basically, mate, we can't do this anymore. We have, you know, we, we have to pull the pin on this. We have to just stop, right? Yeah. Because I don't have any more money to put in the business. You don't have any more money to put in the business. We're both losing a lot of money here. We We have to call it. And so what we did is we put the uh, put the business into liquidation. So that's basically in Australia. We've had lots of breweries recently go into voluntary administration. Like I think you call that Chapter Eleven or something. What do you call it? Where you can come out of it, you know, restructure, come out of it and retrade again and that sort of thing. But we just went straight to liquidation, and it was one of the saddest days when we, you know, to to have to terminate a dozen people's employment and that was shit and one of them being you know matt you know one of my best mates and that sort of thing and closed the doors of the bar and all that sort of stuff and i was i'd actually had left melbourne prior to that because in the months leading up to that from the point we put that batch of beer down the drain to the point we actually closed the bar was was another sort of three or four months and that sort of thing and i left melbourne very suddenly because i was living in an apartment that the business had rented because my business partner was not from Melbourne. He, he lived up in New South Wales and he would fly down and, and wanted somewhere to stay. So, he we'd got a two-bedroom apartment. And it got to the point where I, I couldn't pay the rent. The business was supposed to pay the rent. There was no cash in the business. I couldn't mm-hmm. pay the rent myself. My credit cards were maxed out. Everything was fucked and, and I, I had nowhere to go. And so, I just my brother rang me up. It was just before Christmas and I was due to go up to my brother's for Christmas and that sort of thing. And I said, mate, I'm pretty fucking stressed, eh? He goes, what's going on? I said, mate, I have no money. Business is no money. We just put, you know, $25,000 worth of potential revenue down the fucking drain. The bar's not doing well. I I just think that this is fucked. And he's like, no worries, mate. I'll buy you a plane ticket. And he flew me up to Brizzy. Going, went and hung out with him for a week. And we just talked through a lot of what could happen. He's a very, you know, my, I love my brother. He's, he's, he was a bastard then. He's not a bastard anymore. But we, we talked out what we, what the, the possibility was and the fact that I was basically homeless and that sort of thing. And he said, mate, you got to go down, you know, fly back down, pack up your shit and drive back up. So I flew back down and I packed all my stuff in the apartment, put it in my car, rented a trailer, put my motorbike on, and I drove with all of my possessions back up to Queensland. With my, I left Melbourne with a t- my tail between my leg. And I never told any of my friends I was leaving. Really? I just left. I just disappeared. I just dropped off the face of the, the planet, stopped posting on social media. And then my friends sort of started asking where I was and that sort of thing, you know, on Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. And I would tell them privately and that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, it was hard, you know. But on the flip side, leaving Melbourne was was very challenging, but I was very fortunate. I had a lot of support from a lot of my Queensland friends you know, probably people that I'd call out particularly would be um, Pete Weldon, Smokey from Crumman Valley Brewing. 
I spent a lot of time at his place, you know, when I was not very, very well at all. And we would just hang out and just because he used to sell my beer, you know, he used to work for the distributor and sell my beer and that sort of thing. And we just hang out and, you know, he, he and I sort of spent a lot of time together and he was very, very supportive and I'm very grateful. It was his birthday on the weekend. Happy birthday, Smokey. Happy and, birthday, Smokey. Um, and slowly got back on my feet. And the thing is, is that after the business had basically, or whilst the business was about to fail, you got to think, right, of the timeline. This was literally the same year that we won that trophy. Same fucking year, hmm. right? So in May, I won that champion Gypsy Brewer trophy, the ARBAs. By, the, by November of that year, the business was in dire straits and was not going to survive. You know, How crazy is that? What's the more and more people that I've interviewed that that's sort of a like a piece of the puzzle. And I say this a lot on the podcast that I don't interview assholes who made shitty beer and ugly packaging. Like at some point, the purpose of the podcast is that those of us with a passion for what we're creating that are trying to do the best that we possibly can, learning the industry, figuring it out, still failing. And, and I think that says a lot about beer production in the late 2010s or and and you could extrapolate that out for the last 50 years whatever not my point but point being that i just think it's a fuckload harder than anybody ever admits and i don't know that anyone's making a profit the more people that i meet it's a very slim group of people no definitely definitely not but you know that was kind of the low point there is when brew cult finally went under i have to admit the day that i signed the paperwork to put brew cult into liquidation i felt this great sense of relief the weight being lifted off my shoulders it was that I was like there was it was it was out of my control. Yeah. Nothing I could do, right? And I went and it was just such a relief. It was just like man, whatever's going to happen from here is going to happen. Just whatever happens, I'll handle. Right? That was my thing. All right, I'm getting a bit emotional. <laughs> anyway, and so basically won this trophy. And so when you win this trophy, the following year you have to do a collaboration beer for the next following year's Australian International Beer Awards, right? With all of the other champion small medium and large brewery so this was the first year that the gypsy brewer was involved the first year that the trophy was awarded and so brew cult was invited to do the aiba was a 2017 collaboration beer with stone and wood you know one of the you know, biggest well-known breweries in australia pirate life and two birds <laughs> that was this and, and so if i if you're an australian brewer you you would say you would say top stone and wood pirate life two birds brew cult collab and there's a lot of beer geeks out there who are going, fuck, that's amazing, so cool. The fact that half of those aren't in business anymore is interesting, but go ahead, please. Well, they're, 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 the fact that, well, they're not, they're, they're, all, the, all three of them got sold to, to major breweries. Didn't Two Birds just close? Yes, but uh, they got bought out by Lion. So they uh, became part of the Stone and Wood family. Then they got closed down by Kieran. Anyway, so I left Melbourne. I was living in Brisbane with my niece and nephew and got invited down for the collaboration brew at Stone and Wood in Byron Bay. And we made this AIBA collab, Australian International Beer Awards collaboration beer. I remember standing on the brew deck with, with Keelan Vaughan, who's the head brewer at Stone and Wood, making this beer and that sort of thing. And we started chatting about, you know, brew cult and that sort of thing. And I said, mate, brew cult's pretty fucked. Hey, I don't think it's going to survive past when the AIBAs actually happen. And he's gone, really? And I said, and I kind of gave him the, the brief overview of what was going on and stuff like that. And I said, mate, I really just need a fucking job right now. And he said, no, nah, man. Keelan's just such a fucking awesome bloke. He goes, oh, mate, yeah, cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I'll reach out to Lincoln, um, who was like one of the mentoring brewers there. I'll reach out to him. We'll connect you guys up and see if we can't get your job. And about three or four weeks later, I got a job as a shift brewer at Stonewood. 
And so I'm very, very grateful to the Stone and Wood family for giving me a start when I really just needed a job because I had no money. I was very lucky that the only reason I could survive was that I was staying with my niece and nephew and my my sister was away. And so I stayed at her place rent-free basically and I just needed a job. And Stone and Wood sort of said, yeah, we'll give you a job. And, and so I got a job at Stone and Wood and became a shift brewer and that was when it sort of became official, you know, as far as like the public perception that I was no longer associated with Brew Cult and the Brew Cult was done. And all of the Crafty Pint articles came out about that. And I'm extremely, extremely grateful to the Stone and Wood family. They, you know, I could just, what was good about it was that I could just rock up to work and just do what I love, which is make beer. It just, without having to sell it, I go up, I just start shift, I'll go and brew some work or run some beer through a fucking centrifuge or something cool like that and go home at the end of the shift and have a knockoff beer. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that was that was an amazing experience. I had a good time. A lot of us went through the same situation. And mine is extremely similar, except the fact that instead of going through liquidation, I just sold the assets for dramatically less than they were worth. So it's the same thing. But um, It's just the liquidation with, with more steps. Yeah. No, I just handled it myself, right? It's the same kind of thing. Yeah, thing. yeah. But there's all these like... Uh, just anger and, and frustration. And, and for me, it took eight months before I could enjoy a beer again. Did you experience things similar? Really? It sounds like you kind of went right back into it, but. There was a, I never disliked beer and I never, I never disliked the industry. I just fucked up when it come to running a business. You know? And I could separate me being a shit business person to, to me not enjoying the industry that I love or me being not a good brewer or anything like that, you know, and, and doing, doing, making beer, which is the thing that I love doing. Uh, they were separate things in my mind. Yeah, it was a real wake-up call. And it was kind of at that point that I sort of just decided that I need to focus on the things that I'm good at, right? You know, Stone and Wood offered me a one-year contract. That was enough for me to get back on my feet. And then I decided, well, I want to do something in the industry to make a bit of a difference. And that's kind of how Rockstar Brewer Academy came along. So, yeah. On that note, is it time to take a break? <laughs> well, as I say, if you're cool with it, I would take a break and come back and talk about it, which will, f- at that moment, this is the longest interview we've ever done for the podcast, but I'm happy really? because what we're about to talk about I'm, I'm was a reason I talked to you originally. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. All right. Give me a second. All right. We'll take a quick one. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right. So everybody, including Hendo, thanks for sticking with us to the very end because this is obviously now going to be the record longest interview. But I... Honestly, if it was left to me, it could go twice as long. So I appreciate you doing this. So before we get into what you're doing now, which I'm absolutely interested to hear this whole thing, I kind of wanted to go through. So my book that I wrote in 2019 or released in 2020 was the 10 things that I did wrong. 
and Crafty Pint is kind of y'all's, well, one of your local publications. And, and you had said a couple of things in there when you went out of business. And I thought they'd be interesting to just go over if you have a second. Yeah. So you said, number one, don't go lone wolf. I'd never start solo yes. if I did it again. What do you mean by that? Which basically meant if you're going to start a brewing business, whether that's a brewery or a gypsy brewing company and that sort of thing, it is impossible to wear all of the hats and to do all of the jobs that need to be done. You need a minimum of one other person, preferably two other people, who are working in the business on a daily basis, which I had business partners, but neither of them worked in the business on a daily basis. And therefore, all of the responsibilities of every aspect of the business, from beer production to logistics to financials to costings to sales and everything like that and, and the hospitality venue and all that sort of stuff, one person just can't do all of those jobs well. Right? You need to partner with someone who has your back and you have to have very clear roles and responsibilities within the business. You can't get, and my advice to anyone who's thinking of starting a brewing business, don't fucking get two brewers to become business partners right? because you both want to do the job of brewing right? and there's so many other jobs that need to get done. The way that I see it is you need three people as a minimum. right? You need someone who's good at the beer, the liquid. You need someone who's good at sales and marketing. You need someone who's good at the financials. Right, that's what you need. If you, if you look at other breweries that have been successful in Australia, and Stone and Wood is probably the example that I would use. The three founders of Stone and Wood, Jamie Ross and Brad Rogers. Brad was the brewer. Ross was the sales, marketing, and Jamie Cook was the financial guy. Right, that's the model that you need to have at a minimum. Again, I, I want to get into the next thing, but I don't. I can't leave this question because it's something that keeps coming up all the time. Small brewers and you're in hectoliters, so we could say what your output was. None of us in the states are going to get it. Like we. You know what a metric fuck ton is. We know what a U.S. shit ton is. It's not the same thing. But um, Freedom units, I call them. <laughs> yeah, right. Point being, like, there's not enough money typically in a small brewing operation to be able to pay each of those people to do those jobs. And it's a big issue that we run into all the time. It was a question I had last night. It was, like, about HR. Like, at what point can you afford HR in a brewery? And I'm like, probably never. <laughs> At the end of the day, how would you scale that where the number two that you had said was that you need a good team, which is sort of what you were getting into, that someone's got to be good at financials. Someone's got to be excellent at sales and marketing. Someone's got to be able to handle production and quality, and someone's got to know logistics. Technically, I'm not sure that any one person is going to be exceptional at all four of those jobs. So what would be your recommendation? Like, how do you, do you need four, four owners that each get only profit if it recurs or how would you structure a business under, again, 2,000 barrels? I'm not sure what that translates to hectoliters, but... Yeah, yeah. So 2,000 barrels, it's like, you know, 240,000 litres of beer. That's tough. I don't know if I have an answer to that question. You've just got to make sure that you partner up with the right people. Probably a good example is my good friends, Phil Sharp and Daniel Venema, who just recently opened Hiker Brewing Company here in Brisbane. They didn't know each other, and I introduced them to each other because they, Phil was one of my TAFE students. Daniel, I'd coached him before when he worked at another brewery, and they both had aspirations to open their own breweries and do it solo, and I said to them, fucking both of them separately, don't go lone wolf, guys. And then I went, hang on a second. Who wants to open a brewery? Dan wants to open. I'm going to introduce them. So I introduced them, and lo and behold, we've got Hiker Brewing Company now, which is amazing. <laughs> and best, best hazy IPA in Brisbane, and, and I'm a range fan. Fuck. Anyway. So they got together and, and Phil's very good at the business and financials and running a hospitality venue and Dan's very good at the beer production side of things. Have they filled all of the, the, the roles that need to be filled? No, but they're making a 
damn good go of it. And probably the best thing that they've done in opening a brewery in 2023 in the current climate, we've got the same problems that you guys have got, you know, downturn and inflation and all that sort of stuff, is they've done a really good job at right-sizing their brewery. They didn't make their brewery too big. They just made it the right size. And it was quite fortuitous. It was all related to the post-COVID shipping container pricing. They couldn't get all the equipment that they originally wanted, but what they got is perfect for what they need right now. And so as far as those two guys go, that's they're a two-person team. They have good good advisors as well, I'm led to believe. But between the two of them, I think they do a great job. Yeah, look them up. So let's get to the point of what I really wanted to talk to you about. So 2016, shit gets rough. 2017, you shut it down. You work for uh, Stone and Wood for a little bit. And then... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you start Rockstar Brew Academy. <laughs> what was that all about? And I, I'm curious. I want to know what you guys do, obviously, now and like what the whole point of it is. But really, I'd kind of like to know how Hendo went from, because I was there, those feelings of failure and like all the like bullshit you dealt with and this your reputation in the industry to Rockstar Beer Academy isn't saying, hey, come here. I'll teach you how to make some beer. It's like, bro, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Come learn from me. I think it's awesome. But I'm just curious how you got from that low point to that high point yeah it's the it's the it's the recovery journey i would say so when my contract finished up at stone and wood i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do next and what i wanted to do next was what i was good at and what i was good at was making beer and making beer well i thoroughly enjoy it i'm still passionate about it and i still love this industry and i wanted to make a contribution to it so i started rockstar brewer academy and how it got its name was from a gentleman by the name of Mazen Hajar, who runs Hawker's Beer in Melbourne. Very outspoken guy of Lebanese origin. He's Australian now, though. And so he, we caught up at uh, a beer festival here in Brisbane. And, you know, I had a pretty good, you know, pretty, pretty big social media presence and that sort of thing, except when I was at the low point, that sort of thing. And I kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. And we, I saw him at this beer festival and we're having a beer and he goes, he goes, Hendel, you are an amazing brewer. You are a fucking rock star. The women, they throw their panties at you and that sort of thing. And I was like, come on, man. You know. And I was still working at Stone and Wood at the time. <laughs> Clearly, and, the culture um, around beer in Australia is different if, than the US. If, if, if you know, if you know Mazen, you know that that's what he would he, he would make that sort of statement about a guy and that sort of thing, right? And I said, come on, man. And he's like, no, 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 I'm serious. You're a very good brewer. I hope you continue to do it. And he was like giving me these words of encouragement. Also, still at Stone and Wood, saying, you're a good brewer. Keep doing doing something to make good beer. Then I was sort of a couple of days later, I went, Rockstar Brewer, that sounds really interesting. I wonder if the Instagram's available. Yep, tick, got it. I wonder if the Twitter's available. Mm, got that. Okay, I wonder if the YouTube channel's available. Okay, I got that. And all of a sudden, I, uh, and the domain name and all that sort of stuff, and I managed to pick up Rockstar Brewers with all of the, the socials and domain name and all that sort of thing. And at the time, originally, it was just a blog, right? Rockstarbrewer.com was my blog, just to talk about making beer well and stuff like that and my experience in the industry and stuff like that because no one reads blogs. <laughs> but, but I'm a nerd, so it's fine. I get it. Yeah. And so when I finished up at Stone and Wood, I thought, oh, I, I don't really feel like working for another brewery. I didn't feel like going and going working for a smaller brewery and having to be even associated with the challenges of a small brewery, you know, of the sales and marketing distribution all that sort of stuff. And so I thought, oh, I'll just become a consultant. And so that's kind of how it sort of started. So Rockstar Brewer Academy, originally just called Rockstar Brewer, was, was basically I did a little bit of consulting, wrote a few beer recipes for a few people, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, it sort of turned into um, brewers, head brewers, fucking hate consultants, right? 
They don't want no. I, they, name one brewer that wants another brewer walking into their house and tell and barking out orders and telling them what to do. They fucking hate it, yeah. right? And and so the consulting thing I decided was not what I wanted to be. So I don't call myself. Lots of people try to call me a consultant. I say no, I'm not a consultant. Coach. What's the difference between a coach and a consultant? Well, the consultant walks into a brewery and barks out orders and tells the brewer what to do, and then they get their back up and feel like they're disempowered in their own brewery that they worked so hard on to create. And, and you know, there's a sense of ownership and identity that a, that a brewer has. I don't want to rob them from that. I'm a guest. You know, when I work, when I coach a client, I'm a fucking guest in that brewery, right? And so what I do is I just bring my my experience and I say, well, when I did this, this happened. And when I did this, this happened. And I present the information. They decide what they're going to do, right? Um and so what Rockstar Brewer Academy is, is it's a coaching group. It's a coaching group and community for professional brewers who um, want, to build, want to build their skills around quality, consistency, and passion. Right? They're the, they're, that's what I work on. Um, I, I, my, 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 the, the, my community, um, there's about 60 brewers in my community at the moment, um, and... Uh, we work on things around quality and consistency. That's it. Um, my clients already know how to make beer. They, I don't teach people how to make beer as part of Rockstar Brewer Academy, um, but we create a community of like-minded individuals who want to build their skills, right? So if you think about a typical brewer, particularly a home brewer that's all of a sudden found themselves going pro and they're having a particular brewing technical issue, might be a water chemistry issue, might be dissolved oxygen, might be, you know, something about fermentation or something like that, yeast. Um, and they're like, well, I need an answer to this technical brewing question. Where do I go to get that information? Well, there's a couple of options, right? You can go and uh, you can go on the internet and do some research, right? Um, and you can go and watch a couple of YouTube videos. It's probably going to be me. <laughs> You'll find. Um, or that awesome bloke, Adam Makes Beer. He's fucking amazing. Um, and um, uh, or you'll you'll seek out a local friendly professional brewer from a, a nearby brewery, right? And you'll start uh, picking that person's brain. But eventually what's going to happen there is you're going to wear out your welcome, right? And 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 that that brewery is – they're not you're not competitors, but you kind of are and that sort of thing, you know, admit it. Um, and they're not going to reveal all their secrets and that sort of thing. And so you're kind of going to wear out your welcome if you keep asking technical brewing questions from a local friendly brewer. So then what do you do? Oh, okay, let's jump on one of those professional brewing forums, right? So you go and ask a question on one of those professional brewing forums. You get six fucking different answers from six different brewers that say, my way is the right way, and if you don't do it my way, it's shit. <laughs> right? You still don't have an answer to your, to your technical brewing question and that sort of thing. Or... Lowest common denominator is a professional brewer going and researching and seeking advice from home brewer forums. Professional brewers should not seek guidance and advice from home brewers, period. Right? And so what Rockstar Brewer Academy is, is it solves that problem. It gives professional brewers reliable brewing technical knowledge um, in from, from not just myself, but from um, a like-minded community of, of, of brewers where we help each other. It's an amazing community, right? We don't have any secrets from each other. Um, we 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 are all on the same path, 
right? And we operate on the, the a rising tide lifts all boats. So basically how we work is, is it's three parts to the Rockstar Bureau Academy. Uh, coursework, coaching, and community, okay? So the coursework is if you want to join the Rockstar Bureau Academy, you have to complete um, a program that I call Beer Quality Bootcamp, okay? It's a 60-day program. Basically how it works is you I will brew, you will brew a batch of, batch of your beer with me in your brewery under my guidance, and I guarantee you it will be the best batch of that beer you've ever brewed. Right? And we'll do all the prep work around, um, you know, writing a beer recipe in a way that you you actually plan what you're going to do. Not on like most brewers, they they write a beer recipe. It's a recipe for work, not beer. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's all about fucking brew day, and that's just bullshit. Because then what happens is you you brew becomes a black box, right? So you make work, and then something happens in the middle, and beer pops out the other end, and then you've got this glass of beer you've got out of the bright tank, or you pulled out of the tap, and that sort of thing. And then you go to smell it and taste, it, you go, "Fuck, something wrong with that." And it's too late to fix it. Why is that? Because you haven't documented your process, everything that happens in the brew. So we document the process in advance of making this batch of beer. Um, I demystify brewing water chemistry. Brewing water chemistry is one of my favorite technical topics. I love it. I love water chemistry. Um, and um, uh, uh, it's um, and it's one of the, you know, water chemistry, you got to think about water, man. You've got a beer that's 5% alcohol. It's 95% fucking water, right? It's the most abundant ingredient in beer. Yet most brewers, they, they, they don't understand it or they completely ignore it. And there's so much you can do with the flavor of the beer just by getting the water chemistry right. It's phenomenal. And so I demystify it. I make it really easy. I give them a six, give, my, give my, my members in the Rock Supper Academy six steps that they can manipulate their water chemistry for any beer style. I don't care what it is, right? Um, give them targets to you. We talk about beer foam and haze. We talk about dissolved oxygen, minimizing dissolved oxygen, even if you can't afford a low-range DO meter like a C-box or a Geholter meter or something like that. What, what procedures you should put in place to make sure that you, you minimize DO pickup. Um, we talk a little bit about the basics around brewery safety. Uh, we do um, things around running a good day on the brew house or work production and the things you need to measure, what you need to measure and when. Um, we talk about um, seller operations um, and then we talk about beer packaging. That's sort of thing. And so what you do in Beer Quality Bootcamp is you will brew a batch of your beer with me following the week, week by week, every week for, for 60 days. Um, and, and my promise is that if you follow the steps in that and you do all the prep work, we don't brew until week seven really? in the program. Yeah. Don't even, don't even hit the brew house. There's just, we just basically set up all of the, the lanes about, you know, setting targets and tolerances and, and writing a product specification and all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, brewers find that they have a fucking plan of the beer that they're going to make, right? So if things don't go to plan, they can take the corrective action before it comes out in the bright beer tank and they go, fuck, there's something wrong with that, you know? Um, and I love it. And and my client and my, my, my members, my clients, and I love them dearly, um, have gone on to do some fucking amazing things, right? So we just had the... Um, Australian Independent Brewers Awards uh, three or so weeks ago, and there were 17 trophies that were awarded, right, from all the different beer styles, champion, small, medium, and large breweries, state-based trophies, all that sort of stuff. 17 trophies, uh, and five of them were my clients. It's a good percentage. I don't fuck around. 
I don't fuck around when it comes to beer quality. It's something that I take very, very seriously. And and if you follow the system that I've created, you will make amazing beer. Don't need any fancy equipment either. It's just about having a plan and 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 knowing what you're doing. I don't care. I don't I actually I don't even care about what your recipe is, right? I've seen every fucking beer recipe in Australia because I've worked at a contract brewery that was making, you know, all the beers that were sold in every fucking Dan Murphy's in the country. I don't give a fuck about your fucking recipe. But what I do care about is you making that re- your recipe really, really well, right? And I think that's something that's really missing in um, in the brewing industry and for those – and it's not the same as a formal education, right? You can go to Siebel or UC Davis and, you know, TAFE here in Australia and Federation University – it's not the same as a formal education, right? Because in a formal education, you're just getting knowledge and not a way to practically apply it on the on the production floor. Um, it's not like TAFE; we're actually learning skills and we're teaching you how to brew, but rather it's coaching, and it's something different again. Right? It's basically you're the brewer, you're the member of this community, you're in control of your own destiny in your own brewery, you're making your beer recipes. Here's how we do it well. That's what I love. Well, it sounds amazing. And so clearly there are some parts of it that need to be you on site at the brewery. But do you have clients? Could anybody, no, could anybody in the United States benefit from Hendo's experience through the Rockstar Academy? If, if you come and do beer quality boot camp with all my, all of the Rockstar Brewer Academy is delivered remotely. I will walk you through the process of making your beer in in your brewery, right? And we can work online. All of my clients are from – I have clients all over the world, mate. I've got American clients. I've got one in Mexico. I've got one in fucking Ecuador, uh, one in Croatia, uh, Belgium, France. One of the, I've just picked up a client in the UK. I don't care where you are. I will help you make your best batch of beer ever, and we can do it online. Okay. Pretty cool, so, eh? So let's talk about the, the – you mentioned TAFE earlier. So you are also an instructor for the local – what do you yes. call it there? Is it a university? Is, I don't exactly understand how it works. You, you, you probably call it technical college. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah, but so there, there's more, there are multiple locations of it. Yeah. And you train out of the Queensland facility. That's right. Okay, so so TAFE stands for is, is spelled T A F E, and it stands for Technical and Further Education. Okay, um, all of the TAFE colleges in Australia are government entities. Okay, um, and and they're state government entities, right? So TAFE New South Wales is not the same as TAFE Queensland is not the same as TAFE SA. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have we have four TAFE brewing programs in Australia: one in Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, and Victoria at, at Kangan Kangan Institute. For some reason, Victoria don't call it TAFE; they call it Kangen. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so that's my that's my part time job. So I'm not a full time TAFE teacher. My my the majority of my focus is on uh, Rockstar and the coaching. Um, but TAFE is something that I do. Um, my my personal motivation for it is I love putting new skills in the industry. We had it we, here in Southeast Queensland. We had a real shortage of skills and brewing skills, and the breweries were poaching staff from each other. 
And that caused a lot of angst between a lot of the breweries who should be acting like a fucking community. And it was also putting upward pressure on wages and that sort of thing as well. So it was actually being very detrimental. And so luckily we had this thing called the Queensland Craft Brewing Strategy here where BrewDog decided they were going to open a brewery here in, in, in Brisbane. And in order to entice them there, the state government gave them $2 million in tax relief. Meanwhile, is this multinational brewery who's been enticed with $2 million of tax relief and the local industry just fucking lit up, just going, man, we've been here employing people for fucking years and you haven't given us shit. We, we, right. we generate tourism dollars. We're manufacturing businesses. And and the, and the, the state government's just gone, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. So they, they engaged KPMG to do a study on what the industry needed. Education happened to be one of those things. Um and so TAFE was – and so I was involved in the very early days of the – putting together the TAFE program from, from what the industry needed from that perspective. And then when it came time that the, the funding was approved and TAFE was going to get a course up and running, they put a job ad out to employ teachers. No one would apply. No one applied. Why? Because no one was because no one was available. Everyone's busy, right? If you knew how to make and beer, you're working in a brewery, thing. right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There was no, there was no skills, and so basically, I was doing Rockstar and that sort of thing, and I was busy. And I went, oh, shit, I'll apply. And so I applied, and and my good friend John Meehan, who was about to retire from Forex, one of the big multinational breweries here in Brisbane, he applied as well, and they wanted me to work full time. I said, I can't work full time. I've got a business. So they they employed me two days a week, you know? and I took that job in February of twenty twenty twenty. Two weeks later, three weeks later, we're all in lockdown, <laughs> right? And all my consulting and coaching work fucking dried up overnight. And I went, holy shit, that was pretty lucky that I've got this uh, that I've got this teaching job because I can still eat even though I'm in lockdown. Um, and then they said, well, we need to get this course up and running. Would you do three days a week? And I'm like, where am I going? I'm stuck in my house. Do you want to eat? I'll give you. And I got no. I, 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 and I got to eat. So yeah, sure, no worries. And so, um, so so John Mean and I put this TAFE program together. We wrote all the content. We we wrote a, we wrote and validated um, a, a course that had seventeen units of competency in twenty weeks, which is a fin- wow. we wrote it from pretty much nothing. We we had a little bit of um, licensed content, but. It was just not up to scratch. So we ended up just rewriting the whole thing ourselves. And we took our first intake in the middle of the pandemic in July of 2020. Um, and we started <laughs> we started our own brewing company. Uh, it's called Froth Rookies Brewing Company. And so we've got all of our um, uh, all of our, um, uh, our our cans were developed by tape like tape students doing graphic design. Um, and so because we all had to be original and all that sort of stuff, I'll see if I can show you a picture. Oh, here we go. Yeah, good. Here's some of the, um, let me share my screen. I can show you the, uh, since I finally figured out the security settings. So we had all of the, the labels done. So we've got a dark ale, we've got a session ale, got an IPA, <laughs> got a lager. And so we called it. So the, so the brewing company. There's like 7,000 breweries. Um, like 7,000 breweries in the United States that make labels shittier than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ones. exactly. So it was really well done, eh? Like these guys are just students doing their diploma in graphic design That's and stuff awesome. like that. And so. Um, and so we basically, so we, we originally want to be called South Bank Brewing Company because the 
campuses at South Bank at Brisbane, but we couldn't get the we couldn't register the trademark because it's government. They wanted to register the trademark. Yeah. They said, "Oh, we can't do that because it's just about a place." I said, "Well, let's call it Froth Rookies because that's essentially what the students are. They're rook- rookies, learn how to make good froths." And yeah, that's what the um, that's what we call the graduates now. They're called Froth Rookies. So if, if you've done the course, you're a Froth Rookie, and uh, that's that, that's what you are. And we've got an alumni group as community and. Oh, no, I'm getting emotional again because I fucking love it. I love the teaching. No, that, that part sounds awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> so many gra- – it's just so – I don't think I've ever done anything so satisfying than to see all these great people create a career. So cool. Yeah, well, to that, to that end, like, so I don't think I've probably told you, like, how I came across you, but it was because I was – I, you could, I guess you could say trolling the Facebook groups around the world about starting a brewery and the people were kind yeah. of bitching about the fact that they could not get into TAFE and they there was like a limited number of spots available to become a professional brewer in Australia. Yes. And you had reached out and said like, hey, come to Queensland, we have a little more opening or whatever. But ultimately, even you had filled up. And so I'm, I'm interested because I don't know that that's – well, actually, this week, the UC – Davis, I believe, or let's let's that doesn't matter. Yes. One of the California um, colleges it just stopped their their program, and so in the United States we reached a point where there's not enough demand to justify as many brewing education programs we have. But in Australia, they're still dealing with that issue, and I'm fascinated to know is that because there's so many breweries opening, or because there's so many people that are just still trying to get a professional education. I'm curious. Um, it's it's because we we as far as brewing education goes we had nothing um, mm. up until uh, a few years ago so so when I got my postgraduate degree with University of Ballarat or Federation University it's called now uh, in the early two thousands mid mid two thousands um, there was Federation University there was Edith Cowan University which closed uh, and then there was um, there was TAFE SA. Um, and then I think it was like 2017, 2018, Ultimo TAFE, which is the New South Wales TAFE, put together a Certificate 3 program, um, uh, and then Queensland, and then Victoria is the latest one. We had no access to formal education. Hmm. So the only way, if you're an Australian brewer, um, you know, five to ten years ago, only five to ten years ago, the way in which you got a formal education was to either do IBD um, or go to Siebel, travel, go to Siebel, or go to UC Davis and, and literally travel overseas to go and do 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 their program at huge expense, right? Or or do the limited stuff that was available. And Federation University only takes twenty students a year. That's insane. Um, yeah. And, yeah, we had nothing. That was the thing. Now, so the, the thing about um, TAFE, right, is it's what we call vocational education and training. We call it VET, V-E-T, right? And so what vocational education is, is yes, it's formal education, but vocational education means it's it's training, giving you knowledge and skills for a job, right? It's job training, right? The, the Federation University... Thing that I did that was that was a postgrad degree that was all knowledge right but in in vet it's all about and TAFE it's all about skills and knowledge so here in it at TAFE Queensland we've got a brewery the state government um, spent nearly a million bucks 
on a fucking brewery. They're sick. The government owns a brewery here. That's your tax dollars. Oh, not your tax dollars. That's my tax dollars at work. <laughs> Thank you. And it is it is the fucking best kitted out brewery I've ever worked in, man. We've got everything. So basically, we wanted to set the standard of what a brewery should be for this industry to make this industry better. The state government was pretty adamant about that. And so we've got a it's only a two, two uh, it's only a, a two barrel brew house, but it's a steam brew house and that sort of thing. We've only got a couple of fermenters, a one 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 five barrel one two to get some more tanks, I think, um, in the next year or so. Um, but we've also got um, a cask max canning line, so we've got a full canning line that we wheel out and that sort of thing. Um, and um, and we've also have a, a lab that's absolutely kitted out. So when I first started with tape. Um, my faculty manager had had a budget. He had a budget with some funding from the Department of State Development um, for about three hundred fifty thousand dollars for this canning line, which had a fucking depalletizer and fucking pack off things and all this automated stuff. And I said, "Mate, this is great, but we're making two barrels at a time. I think a depal is a little bit overkill, man." <laughs> so, and I said, "And you got a bunch of free labor. Rigid. They can depalletize by." And fuck yeah, those exactly. Kids, right? <laughs> and I said to the I said to the faculty manager, I said, mate, we're not going to use this equipment. Um, and he says, but the, the but the funding's approved for it. And I went, well, if we rejig that and downsize it, can I spend that money that we save on other stuff? And he said, yeah, I think we can do that. We can do a variation and that sort of thing. So we so basically, cask were amazing, and they came out. They came with an educational price. Um, and we got a we got a cask max canning line for a very very good price, but then we loaded it up with the seam scope, the saw that cuts the seams, of the cans, so you can fucking look at that and all the micrometers and all sort of stuff. We we just kitted out right, um, and then the the the, the two hundred thousand dollars that I saved, I spent a lot of money with Anton Parr. We've got the fucking ninety thousand dollar Anton Parr DMA forty one hundred alkalizer. Really? Um, because we already had we already had an Alex 500, but anyone who uses an Alex 500 knows when it comes to hazy beers, they're not particularly that good. I love Anton Parr, don't get me wrong. So we've got that. We've got two C-boxes, two PFDs, spectro, shaker tables, two microscopes with all the big screens and shit because we had a vision-impaired guy. So they they said, oh, we'll, we'll, I'll give you some more money. But I taught, I taught a, a guy who had 10 to 15% vision, taught him to brew. In a brewery, work on the floor, no problem. Okay. Um, and um, but we had to get him a microscope with a big screen so he could count yeast cells. Blind guy counts yeast cells, fucking great. And um, um, uh, and so we're really, really well kitted out. And so it's basically built in a food pilot plant. It's the government department, it's the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries own the facility. But when you go brew there, you've got to wear like a lab coat and you've got to have all of your hair covered up. So you'd have to wear a beard, uh, a hairnet. I obviously don't have to wear a hairnet, but I have to wear a beard snood. And so you've got to wear the thing over your face and that sure. sort of thing. But the record show that Hendo doesn't have any hair is the way you said that. I've got, I'm, 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 I've got great ventilation. <laughs> and um, and so we, we make some amazing beer. And the best thing is, right, is that um, – we we enter our beers in into competitions and we won our first gold medal uh, at the Indies three three weeks ago. The session ale, which is our mid strength, our three and a half percent like hazy ale ale, uh, won a fucking gold medal and and I just put, couldn't believe it. Right, that 
and uh, that that we actually did it right um you know and and it's the thing that i've wanted to prove is that students who have little to no experience working on a production floor can and will make beer as good as the industry and if the students can do it then the fucking industry needs to do the same with regards to its quality as well not up or shut up and that's right? the thing that i'm yeah Huh? Nut yeah, up or exactly. shut up, yeah. Right. Yep, yep. Don't half-ass this shit because consumers, they deserve better, right? And, um, yeah, that's kind of, that's 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 my jam and I love teaching. Now, I'm not the only teacher, right? So I'm, And I'm, I only work one day a week. I'm part-time. We've got, uh, we've got, uh, we've got four teachers. One of them's moving over to distilling. We've got a distilling course starting. Moving over to that, Kate. We've got Stu. Oh, we've got five teachers. Fuck. Because um, we just hired two, right? And so um, at the moment, he, hey, get this right. So in Queensland at the moment, the certificate three in food processing, the brewing course, it's free if you're a Queenslander, right? It's free. It's paid for by the government. And um, and so you can get like a eight or $10,000 course, nothing for a Queenslander. Uh, I don't know how much longer it's going to last, um, but... Um, um, but you know, we're doing some great stuff. We've, we've graduated now, I think about 120 students since 2020. We run, we used to run two cohorts, uh, full-time and a part-time. We would do two part-time, uh, two full-time, which is six months. And then part-time takes a year. Um, at the moment we're running three cohorts. So we run two concurrent full-time cohorts and one part-time cohort. Um, and um, we're making some of the best beer, man. It's really good. Oh, my God, my, my teaching partner, Kate. So when you when you come and do the course, right, before you finish, you get to do what we call your finale beer, right? So you actually get to write a recipe and brew a beer, right? And and um, and they just did this um, mango goza. Holy fuck me sideways. The best, I don't drink a lot of sours, but this is like this Philly sour beer that they did and it just looks like mango juice and it tastes like mango juice. It's phenomenal. It was just amazing. We're going to, I think they kegged that this week and we're on holidays and I can't wait till we get it on the, the club bar. It's just phenomenal beer. So that's what we do. It's good. There's there's me, Matt, Matt and Stu and Kate. My boss is called Kate. So there's basically two Matts, two Kates, there's a Stew and a Kate Stewart, and I'm the only hendo. <laughs> In the world, <laughs> probably. Mad. So <laughs> I think that's awesome. And one of my favorite parts of the story is that clearly that uh, once Brew Colt closed, you, in a way, have thrived since then, in my opinion. But interesting question. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And I've got two questions, and I'm going to let you get out of here because clearly I've gone long. But first one, if today hendo could go back and talk to 2013 hendo when he's opening up his brewery, what is that guy going to say? And I'm not even going to, I'm going to preface it with anything. What do you, what do you want to say to 2013 Hendo? Tough one. Uh, yeah, I'm here because of that experience. Mm-hmm. Good and bad. So as much as I would like to say to 2013 Hendo, <laughs> fucking run. <laughs> Don't fucking probably, do it, but also <laughs> do it. Yeah. I probably, I probably would have, uh, would have, would have said, 
um, uh, go do that, but go buy some Apple stock at the same time. Right. I, put half your know. income in that. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I am here because of, because of my experience. And I don't think that I would change that as, as, as bad as the low points would be, as bad as the low points were, I would not change it. Well, I absolutely have the same experience in my career, but so the other question to, would be kind of in the same vein, but what do you want the legacy of brew cult to be? And when somebody thinks of that beer, that experience, and clearly you you, you have, uh, what'd you call it? Like you've taken it and become something more with it, but like, what do you want that legacy of brew cult to be? The, the legacy of brew cult at the time was that the beers were creative and fun and um, enjoyable and well-made and that sort of thing. But the industry does a pretty good job of doing that now, right? And so it's, it's, it, it, so it was a brand that really set the tone for what we experience now in, in the craft brewing industry. Um, um, the legacy lives, man. It, it just it lives in what's happening in our industry now. You know? um, the, the good thing is, is that when um, when Brewcult went under, like I was pretty, you know, not in a good way. I had a, you know, when when I was running Brewcult, I had a really big social media presence and that sort of thing. And the punters were different then. The drinkers, the, the craft beer consumer was different then. They wanted to know at the time, you know, who was making the beer, what the beer was made from, how it was made, and all that sort of stuff. They, you know, as you, you've said that before, they're interested in the the, the person um, and the and the process, not you know, and and that's kind of what what interests them. Um, and it was the same then, but for some reason, through the you know, you have all the beer geek Facebook groups and stuff like that, where they post pictures of the beers and they try and one up each other with all the whales and all that sort of stuff that doesn't interest me at all. There was a period there during Brewcult where uh, it really degenerated into not – it went from what's Hendo making, what beer is he making, what's that made of, how's it being made through to where's Hendo going, what's he doing, who's he dating, and all this really personal stuff, like just like this B-grade celeb- D-grade celebrity status sort of thing. I won't say B-grade, I'm not far from it. E-grade celebrity status. And that was tough because that was my my personal life that started getting discussed on on beer geek Facebook groups and stuff like that. And so when Brewcult went under, I really took a big break from social media. It's taken me a little while to come back because um, I I value my privacy around my personal life. Um, it's really really important to me, um, um, particularly around my friends and family and 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 personal relationships and stuff like that and um uh but now you know like doing the rockstar brewer thing you kind of have to get back out there and 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 it's sort of something that i've really hesitated on doing i've done a few youtube videos and stuff but you you're you'll see in the next few weeks the rockstar brewer instagram really start to really and, and the youtube really start to 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 really light up um with some just because i just want to get back out there and just teach some good content you know for free just to share knowledge you know um because it's fun for me so yeah that's my experience did that even answer your question i just went on a ramble yeah no <laughs> the question was what's the legacy of Rukult? i think you answered that question yeah absolutely so i'm going to link all the ways they can get in touch with you um in the show notes obviously we can go to rockstar brew academy but is there 
anything that they need to know, anything that the, uh, the audience should remember about Hendo before we wrap yeah. up? Oh, look, if you want to find me online, you know, Rockstar Brewer, of all the things, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, I run a Facebook group called Quality Focus Pro Brewers. Um, if you just come to rockstarbrewer.com, um, you'll, you'll get, you'll find a link. Uh, well, if you, if there's a quality guide there, download that and, and you'll get a link to the, the, the Facebook group. I post loads of, loads of content there. It's not public, but so I can just, it's a little subset of people who are, uh, into making beer well and that sort of thing. Um, and come and join that conversation. Love to see you. All right. Well, absolutely. So I, I cannot thank you enough. Not just the fact that, again, you're coming from the future and you're telling us things we don't know yet, <laughs> but that you've <laughs> taken the time to spend and, and talk about, obviously, very emotional and you know important information. But your story is different than anything I've ever told. And like I've said many times, I'm only going to quit this job the day that I stop learning new things. And I absolutely learned new things from talking to you today. So thank you for taking the time. I absolutely appreciate thank it. Thank you. You and I are on the same page there. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.